Baja Desert and the great American Southwest. I bid you all good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you may be in the world's time zones. Oh, so many of them. Every single one of them covered like a blanket by this program, Coast to Coast AM. I'm Art Bell. Great to be here escorting you through the weekend. Safely through the weekend, I hope. Speaking of safely or not so safe, uh, Discovery Channel running Super Volcano. And I was watching that right up until airtime, but I've got the DVR running on it, so I will capture the entire thing and see it all. But basically, a pretty scary flick, to be sure. It's about Yellowstone, the caldera going boom. And uh, the entire area, including mine down here, I think. Now, I didn't get that far in the show, but... I imagine we're toast, too, here in the high desert. Uh, speaking of big events, uh, an, just an incredible late snowstorm in Colorado. A very good friend of mine, Tim, is a truck driver, and they've got all the roads closed. He was in the New Mexico area near Colorado, near the Colorado border, and those roads are closed, so he's in a motel for the night. 18-wheeler getting snow piled on top of it outside going nowhere, and that's where a lot of people are stuck and going nowhere on those highways. So if you're out there and one of them, stay warm and stay put. You probably have no choice. Turning to what world news there is, the lead story, Cardinals prepare to, uh, to meet to plan conclave. Here it comes. Catholics' thoughts turned to who might replace their beloved Pope as the Cardinals, silenced by an unprecedented pledge not to reveal their thinking, prepared to meet again Monday to plan next week's conclave to select a new leader. One of the Cardinals, who celebrated Masses around Rome on Sunday, gently requested of the faithful, all of you out there, to please stop speculating on possible successors to Pope Paul, uh, John Paul II. So, in other words, stop the rumors. <laughs> They'll figure it out. But what a process. Thousands of Israeli police mobilized at Jerusalem's most sensitive holy site Sunday, but confronted only a handful of Jewish extremists intent on scuttling a Gaza pullout by trying to tie up security forces. In Gaza, militants fired dozens of mortar shells after Israeli forces killed three teenagers. Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, speaking on a plane, taking him to Monday's meeting with President Bush, said the mortar fire is, quote, a flagrant violation of the understandings, end quote, reached at the February Truce Summit with Palestinian leader Abbas. Private GOP tensions over Tom DeLay's ethics controversy have spilled into the public today as a Senate leader called on DeLay to explain his actions when a House Republican demanded the majority leader's resignation. A representative, Chris Shays, Republican from Connecticut, told the Associated Press in an interview uh, calling for DeLay to step down as a majority leader. So I guess it's getting very serious. Hundreds of travelers, as I mentioned, stranded at the Denver airport and along highway Sundays as a blizzard blew across eastern Colorado with wet, heavy snow. The temperature right now in Denver probably about 28 degrees or so, and that makes for the very wet kind of heavy snow that they're getting. 
Tiger Woods. Ah, he's back, folks. He's the Masters champion yet again, turning back a surprising challenge Sunday with a shot of sheer magic and a birdie putt to win uh, a playoff that he never expected. So congratulations, Tiger. Women, oh, look at this. Women at the National Institutes of Health faced sexual intimidation and repeated disregard of their concerns for the welfare of patients in AIDS experiments, according to testimony by two senior female officers and documents gathered by other investigators, one longtime uh, medical officer at the government's premier medical research agency alleges that the harassment and disregard for federal safety regulations are so widespread that employees are now afraid to hold up experiments even if they see, uh, uh, if they see a safety problem. In a moment, I've got uh, some news, well, that's very worrisome. You might or might not have heard about it. If not, you will in a moment. Scary stuff. You might not have heard... uh, about this on the uh, regular evening news. I'm n- really not sure, but this really, really, really bears your careful watching, all of ours. Headline is, Panic in Angola as Killer Virus Spreads. The killer virus is Marburg. Most of you have heard, I think, of Ebola. Marburg is a close and extremely deadly relative of Ebola. And, well, just listen to the stories. Um, Panic spread through Angola's capital yesterday after the worst recorded outbreak of the deadly Marburg virus, an Ebola-like condition that kills with massive internal bleeding, claimed its 150th life. Many in Luanda, a city of 3.8 million, withdrew their children from schools, shops, ran low on supplies of bleach, which millions wanted to disinfect the water supply. State radio broadcast an emergency message every single 10 minutes saying, Alert! Marburg, don't touch any corpse. Inform the health authorities about any suspicious illness or death due to bleeding. Angola's health ministry said that 163 cases of Marburg have been recorded thus far. All are believed to have originated in the province of Uigi, I guess it is, U-I-G-E, about 180 miles northeast of Luanda on the border with the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Four people have died in the capital all of them thought to have traveled from that city. An Italian doctor working in a hospital there is among the dead. At least three, uh, three-quarters of the victims are children under the age of 15. We've now started to deploy teams uh, in the problem areas, said the World, World Health uh, Organization. We can get a real sense of the depth and width of the problem. It's important to realize that Marburg is... Very new for us. It is serious since we don't know much about it. And then I picked up on a commentary um, published in something called, uh, or on a website called recombionetics.com. And it's, this is very worrisome. Marburg Airborne Transmission in Angola. Listen carefully. 
And I can't, uh, of course, guarantee it's not one of the major news services, so I'm just going to read it to you. Be your own judge. It says, medical workers warn visitors not to shake hands with anyone and not to stand directly in front of residents when talking to them for fear that a cough, a cough could release an infectious spray of spittle. Silo Margarita is one of the few nurses still working at the 500-bed regional hospital here, a sprawling collection of well-kept one-story concrete buildings that appeared almost deserted on Saturday afternoon. Wearing a surgical mask and plastic wrapped on her boots, she continued to care for 12 patients, despite the fact she said that as many as 15 of the hospital's nurses and two doctors have died from Marburg. The... Two nurses died only last Thursday, she said. The deteriorating situation there is raising the obvious question. Is Marburg transmitting through the air in Angola? Although there have always been warnings about transmission via contact with bodily fluids and concern about uh, coughing, raising questions about uh, the ease of airborne transmission. Initially, most of the Marburg, uh, Marburg cases were children under the age of one, suggesting transmission via contaminated needles during childhood vaccinations. However, about a month ago, the first healthcare worker died, and as noted above, the number is now 17. Though protective gear was in short supply initially, the deaths of healthcare workers are still being recorded. The total number of Marburg cases alive is relatively small. When the WHO first announced the sequence results on March 23rd, they sequenced the virus, there were only seven Marburg patients alive. Get this, 95 patients out of 102 so far have died. The number diagnosed has risen to 213. The number still alive has grown to 30. The increase in, in, in patients alive simply reflects the fact that newly diagnosed patients are being tallied quicker than older existing cases are dying. As noted above, there are only 12 patients in the main hospital at the epicenter of the outbreak. The ability of such a small number of patients to infect so many healthcare workers, especially, one might add, after infection control efforts have been increased, does raise the possibility that airborne transmission is fairly efficient. The current outbreak in Angola has a case fatality rate at or near 100% higher than any other prior outbreak of Marburg or Ebola. It has now begun transmitting in Luanda and will easily eclipse the old record of 280 dead set for uh, Ebola, you'll recall, in 1967. So this is really one of those things that the world has got to keep its eyes centered directly on. Should there actually prove to be airborne Marburg with up near, what, a 100% fatality rate, actually, looks like, that could go whizzing around the world very quickly indeed. And I'm sure, and I would hope they would, be taking appropriate steps to isolate it, and the mind, mine anyway, always wanders back to some motion pictures, you'll recall it were made about outbreaks in the U.S. and the cleansing of the area that ultimately was ordered by the political, you know, 
I, I think I can see that such a horrible decision could be made. I mean, there could be a medical absolute necessity to simply sterilize the area where such an outbreak occurred if it began to be airborne. I mean, that's literally all you could do and probably the only way that it could be stopped. So, you know, we've got to keep our eye on this kind of thing. The following, I think you will find very, very educational. Uh, this comes from a listener of mine uh, down in Australia. A police officer, in fact, Ed Chanel, I'll give his name, a police officer in Australia. Hi, Art. Thought perhaps you all would like to see the real figures from down under. It has now been 12 months since the gun owners in Australia were forced under a new law to surrender. Uh, it turned out to be a total of 640,381 personal firearms to be destroyed by our own government, a program costing Australian taxpayers, he adds, $500 million. And the results from taking all of these guns are now in. You ready? Of course, as you know, uh, crime would be down now substantially. They've taken away the guns from, from people, more than well over half a million of them, and destroyed them. So let's see what's going on in Australia now. It's been a year. Australia-wide, homicides whoops, are up 3.2%. Australia-wide, assaults are up 8.6%. Australia-wide, armed robberies, oh my God, they're up 44%. Now, you would think with all the guns gone, they'd be down, but they're up 44%. In, in fact, in the state of Victoria alone, homicides with firearms are now up 300%. Oh, my gosh. Then it says, note, while the law-abiding citizens turned them in, the criminals did not, and the criminals still have their guns. While figures show over the previous 25 years, uh, there was a steady decrease in armed robbery with firearms, this has changed drastically upward in the past 12 months since criminals have guaranteed their prey is unarmed. There also has been a dramatic increase in break-ins and assaults of the elderly. Australian po uh, politicians are just at a loss to explain how public safety seems to have decreased after such a monumental effort and expense was expended in successfully ridding Australian society of guns. I doubt you're going to see this on the American Evening News or hear your governor or members of the state assembly disseminating this informa information. But the Australian experience would seem to prove it. Guns in the hands of honest citizens save lives and property, and yes, gun control laws affect only the law-abiding citizens. Take note, Americans, before it's too late. And I, so I think that's a, a very well-advised um, little missive from Australia. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, a year ago, they expended all of this money. They collected zillions of guns from law-abiding citizens in Australia. And what is their payment? Much more crime. Much less safe. 
Now, I live out uh, in an area here, you know, kind of in the sticks. And uh, here you're allowed, uh, if you're clean and they do an FBI check, to carry a gun. And I must tell you, it makes for a very much more polite society. And I think a safer society. It's just common sense. Think about it. If you were a burglar, or worse, and you were approaching a residence, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't you have much more reason to pause if you were, for example, approaching a residence here near where, where I live, where virtually everybody has a gun? You're damn right you would be. Or um, uh, perhaps uh, here where I live, where one might, uh, general expectation might be 10 or 15 or even 20 minutes before the police could arrive. Should something happen, about the only thing the police are going to be able to do, if it, you know, with somebody with bad intent, is they'll be able to draw a chalk line around your body. And that's where you were, right there in that chalk line. But if you have a gun to defend yourself, well, once again, from the mind of the person uh, preparing to do the dastardly deed, they've got to imagine you might have a gun. But if you're in Australia, and you're a criminal, and you're confident that all of those nasty deterrent things are have been collected, and the worst you're going to face is somebody with a frying pan in their hand, well, I guess the numbers don't lie, do they? So before we approve any measure to collect up all the guns at some great taxpayer expense and have them melted down, uh, perhaps we should all reflect on what happened in Australia. What do you think? East of the Rockies, you're on the air. Well, you would have been, sorry. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hi. Hi there, how are you? I'm quite well, thank you. Great. Uh, just wanted to ask about Ed uh, Dames last night, if we could. What would you ask about him? Well, he, he mentioned that some of the little uh, elements that he saw in the future could be changed. He spoke of changing small uh, Yes, smaller, smaller things. Maybe something, for example, at a personal level for you. I mean, if you saw you were going to get hit by a truck, you just wouldn't go there, you wouldn't get hit, something else would happen. The larger things out of control, he said. Okay, now, now uh, as far as the collective goes, you know, like moving, faith can move mountains, don't you think we could sort of delay or maybe alter some of the big stuff as well? Well, it's, uh, I, I don't rule it out. Um, as you know, I experimented with and believe very strongly in this mass consciousness business. But I also temper that, as I think you know, with caution. Because, you know, the old expression of not fooling around with Mother Nature, it's probably good advice. I mean, you, you know, if, if you're doing something on that scale, then, then if you did have an unintended consequence, oh my God, it would be massively severe over a very wide area. Yeah, and sir, uh, I'd like to ask you, I'm from a military family, I'd like to ask you about Semper Fi. If it's, you're swearing an oath to the Constitution or just to the, uh, the President's administration, how does that work for you guys? What do you mean, you guys? Well, the military, uh, Marines, you can... You, you know, Semper Fi is, of course, a, a Marine expression, as you... Yeah, but it's regarding the oath or something along the... In, 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 well, I'm not clear on what you're asking. Well, you know, you got to you got to sign away your constitutional rights to fight to protect the constitution, and then everybody's letting the constitution be eroded anyway. It's an odd. Uh, well, that's a very broad political it's comment. A I, I mean, yeah, it is. Uh, of course, uh, the constitution is being eroded. You know, in the broader sense, as we fight terrorism, uh, the natural outcome of terrorism is going to be an erosion of uh, personal rights. 
to find it. We've got to search where we did not previously search to find it. We've got to be able to come up with uh, all kinds of new technology, face, uh, face recognition programs, that sort of thing. There's got to be tighter controls at the border. And those things that you consider to be your right of privacy are certainly becoming eroded as we fight terrorism. Just no question about it. But I don't see any contradiction with regard to somebody taking an oath uh, to, you know, join one of the U.S. armed services and protect the Constitution. Not maybe in the very broadest sense. But in the meantime, believe me, a soldier still follows orders. When you're in the military, that's what you do. You follow orders and you let policy be decided in Washington. That's just how it works. Good morning. Wildcard line at area code 775-727-1295. The first-time caller line is area code 775-727-1222. To talk with Art Bell from east of the Rockies, call toll-free at 800-825-5033. From west of the Rockies, call Art at 800-618-8255. International callers may reach Art Bell by calling your in-country Sprint Access number, pressing option 5. And dialing toll-free 800-893-0903. From coast to coast and worldwide on the Internet, this is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. Those are the numbers. They're a little different uh, over the weekend, so you might make note of them. We'll be in open lines for the next half hour. Top of the hour, though, uh, comes actually the world's biggest expert, the world's foremost expert on the whole phenomena of near-death experiences, the Honorable Raymond, Dr. Raymond Moody. I think it's sort of threw that in. Very 
very great guy, Dr. Moody, and uh, he, he essentially began all of this um, in the modern era. Uh, he's quite a guy, and if you've been curious about near death, he's the man. Coming up uh, oh, in less than half an hour. So into open lines again. At the top of the hour comes Dr. Raymond Moody. Uh, Wildcard line, you're on the air. Hello. 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 Yes, hi. You're on the air. Oh, how you doing, Art? I'm okay, sir. Ah, uh, you want to air? I I died once. You a died. Long time ago. You died once a long time ago. Yeah, back in '82. I was in a bad car wreck. I got busted up real bad and wound up spending about six weeks in a coma and. Uh, my body healed, and coming out of the coma, I went into shock, and everything shut down. Yeah, six weeks in a coma, shock, everything shuts down. I assume your heart quit beating, that sort of thing. Yes, sir. Um, do you well, do you have any do you have any recollection? Uh, uh, how much do you remember of that time? Actually, um, I'm not sure if it was a dream or a memory or what happened, but if it was, it was not too bad. Because I didn't, I didn't ever see him working on me or anything like you hear most of the other people did. Yes. I kind of woke up like in a park, and it was a park I grew up in. The only thing was, is everybody was that was there was somebody who had died before me. Well, that's a pretty big hint. And uh, well, the weird part was the first person who met me was my grandfather. And when I saw him, he looked like he did when we were when I, the last time I saw him. But as time went by, everybody changed, and we all just kind of became the same. Like we were all, you know, about the same age, and everything was just really good. I mean, it's one of them things that I just don't a lot of love there. In other words, when you first got there, for example, you met your grandfather who had passed, and he looked at first as you remembered him, but then changed until eventually everybody else, everybody still recognizable was about the same age. Yeah, you know who everybody was. You just they, they everybody was the same, though. That's pretty interesting. Um, all right, thank you very, very much. Uh, I was speaking with a friend of mine on on ham radio, Ben. <laughs> he's a doctor. He's a uh, physician uh, now retired. I think mostly retired. I think he still does some. Um, you know, I I don't know what he does. I think surgery. Anyway. Uh, he knew that Dr. Moody was coming on tonight, and he, he said, it is very interesting, you know, we encounter things like that. He told me he's encountered people who have had these NDEs like the man we just talked to, and and he's not so sure about it. Uh, he said, you know, there are explanations that could uh, end up making everybody telling, you know, everybody's telling the truth. In other words, there are physical explanations that doctors give for what might be causing this. But then again, there's what <laughs> the people who have gone through it say. And Ben said, well, my friend the doctor, you know, there could be explanations that would make both parties happy, the doctor and the people who have gone through these experiences. Anyway, that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. East of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hi. I'm on. Yes. Hello, this is Andrew. Uh, I was just commenting about the um, guns. Oh, the guns. Yes. 
Uh, I think it's very foolish of them to uh, take them away from the public. Uh, what if you're in an area like, uh, okay, well, I live in Memphis, and Memphis is an extremely crime-involved city uh, for one of its size. And everywhere you look, there's crime and everything. So wh what happens if, um, say, you're in your house by yourself and somebody kicks in the door? And if you don't have a gun, what are you going to do? Well, right. Um, duh. In other words... Uh, don't take uh, guns away from uh, the people that... Uh, look, the statistics show it again and again and again and again that uh, the crimes are not committed uh, ever by people who have, for example, carry permits. These are people that have been checked out by the local police and the FBI and the authorities, and they're given permits to carry weapons. These people are not committing crimes. The ones that are doing it are the criminals. And they have the guns, and they're not going to turn them in. So, this is like gun 101. I, I guess mine is the mentality of most Americans. We believe very strongly, and I think this is evidence from, from Australia. You know, how many times can you underscore something? This one just nails it right to the wall. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hi. Hi, Art. This is Blair in Sedona, Arizona. Hello. Would you uh, remind folks of your 2001 interview with Pam Reynolds about her experience when she was completely brain dead? And uh, what remarkable stuff. Uh, yeah. Yes, uh, I've had uh, actually... Actually, sir, the one that hit me between the eyes was Sarah. Sarah is one I will never, ever, ever, ever forget. I, I don't know what hit me so hard about Sarah, and I don't know whether you ever heard that one. I heard that one, too. Yeah, that was the best, I thought. Yeah. Pam Reynolds, very good. Sarah, right through the roof. And so it goes to the point I wanted to make about electronic voice phenomena and oh. what Ed Dames talked about as residual energy being uh, a prime motivator. Right. Well, how about this spiritualism that uh, the author of Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, followed in the 19th century, whereby the spiritualists don't worship spirits, but they seek to contact those who cross the border dividing, you know, the material world from the spiritual. And that they say that God is real, but defined in different ways depending upon the individual's level of spiritual development. In other words, the phrase, the God of your understanding, is often used to talk about divinity. So doesn't that sort of uh, bring to mind that maybe not all trans channelers are fraudulent and you just have to sort of judge by their fruits you shall know them? <laughs> I, I certainly agree with that. They're not all fraudulent, though I think there are a lot of frauds out there. I've always been highly suspicious of channeling just because it, uh, oh, I don't know, it's just so easy. I, I mean, anybody with a little bit of drama could do it. Shift their voice. Begin to become somebody else from long ago with the story of the old and the way it was when you were stabbed, stabbed through the heart by a sword. Right? So you can do that. Uh, I think anybody almost could do it, some more convincingly than others. However, uh, I think there are real channelers, real psychics, Separating the wheat from the chaff, not so easy. East of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hello. 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 Turn your radio off, please. That's number one. Now you may speak. All right. I was wondering if I ever heard of the Prometheus and Bob tapes. 
Hmm. Well, first of all, this is art. Oh, art. Uh, no. Explain what you're talking about. Oh, Prometheus and Bob tapes on 900,000-year-old tapes made by an alien trying to educate a caveman. No, I wasn't around for that. They're all cartoons. Oh. It's something you might enjoy. <laughs> has a very Darwinian overture to it. All right. Well, you know my email, artbell at uh, AOL.com or artbell at mindspring.com. Be sure and send them right along. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Uh, how you doing, Art? I'm doing okay, sir. I think what people mostly forget about uh, the Second Amendment is it was stated to help us, you know, just in case the government got out of control is our way of fighting that. That's, that's one of the th reasons, yes, uh-huh. Right, it makes everybody a little uneasy, as they should be, uh, and that means not just criminals, but our government, too. That's what the Second Amendment is, is all about. Um, it should make those who wish to do evil uncomfortable, because most uh, well-intentioned good citizens are armed, something anybody of evil intent would have to keep in mind before committing it. First time caller line, you're on the air. Good morning. Yeah, I got an analogy for your uh, buddy who uh, is a medicinal surgeon guy that uses the ham radio. Mm. The brain is simply a computer, and it transceives and receives much like a ham radio with video. Well, nobody's proven that yet. Well, take some DMT. Take some DMT. Take and some DMT. See, that's all I got to say, man. Oh. You guys have a good night. All right. See you later. Yeah, take some DMT. Well, that doesn't mean you're receiving anything. Well, that means, it, well, in a way you are. You're receiving the results of all those neurons firing in directions that they're not sure of. You're getting those, so you're certainly receiving that. Now, whether the brain... Uh, brain actually... <laughs> I can hear my wife laughing in the other room. Whether the brain actually... Um, receives and transmits anything we have not detected it electromagnetically yet that doesn't mean it is not so it doesn't mean that uh, uh, some sort of uh, communication doesn't occur on um, oh I don't know uh, perhaps a uh, what's the right word for it there's a nanotechnological answer for this, but uh, at the quantum level, that's what I meant to say. Uh, it, it may well be there's something occurring at the quantum level, but that's way ahead of us, and with what electromagnetic spectrum we have checked, we haven't found any transmission or, or anything aimed at the brain. doesn't mean it's not there. Wildcard line, you're on the air. Hey, Art, this is Lynn from Dallas. Yes. Uh, about the guns, uh, you know, if, if they try to take our guns away, I've never committed, I'm, a, I'm not a criminal, you know, mm -hmm. but I've always had a gun. Mm -hmm. uh, if they order us to give our guns up, that's going to make me a criminal because I'm not going to do it. Right. Well, you and many others, sir, that's right. I, I know. And, and I don't think the American government is dumb enough to try to tell Americans to give up their guns. You might be able to get with, away with that in in Australia. You might be able to get away with that in other more socialist countries, but not here, not Americans, no way. Now, I know that it's occurred in, in certain specific areas, um, uh, New York City, for example, uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, California in general, some certain areas, but other than that, 
I think that any order for Americans to give up their guns would be met with walls of lead. First time caller line, you're on the air. Hello. Yes, hello. Uh, Art? Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I'm uh, Courtney in Mitchell, South Dakota, listening on 1490 KORN. Happy to have you. What's up? Yeah, I guess I'm just kind of weighing on the, on the gun debate. and uh, I don't even see why it was a debate. What debate? Well, I guess uh, it's more of a comment about... Uh, sorry, sorry about the, the word debate. I'm a little nervous. Um, <laughs> no, I, I'm being a little facetious. To me, there is no debate. There's just, you don't give up your guns. And and when you do, you could imagine what would happen and, and what did happen in Australia, what I just read you. And, and I'm agreeing. I'm an NRA member myself. And But I was just going to uh, extrapolate just a little bit and, and wonder about, uh, you say you live in a, in a fairly uh, remote area. That's right. Now, don't you think that would really make the politicians mad seeing people in remote areas just because they are uh, isolated and not in a more observable community as a city? Where people in cities... No, I'm not following you. Make them angry. Why? Well, the people in cities are easier controllable, uh, more easily controlled. Oh, I suppose. Um, you know, all of this would be true only if they had designs on us, which I, I don't really believe they do. And, but and we've got to keep know, our eyes on them. And just the fact that they keep, uh, the media really portrays people in remote areas as backwards type of people. Well, the hell does the media know? Well, obviously... I, I, look, I, I, you know what? I've got a couple things to say, say about that. For example, the kind of thing you just said uh, is an attitude that comes from people, you know, in the Northeast Corridor, for example, in New York City, yeah. uh, in those kinds of areas. They, they may look down on the rural people as being somewhat less, but here in the rural areas, sir, we're bigger than that. We tolerate people from New York. We tolerate people even from Brooklyn and find that they're good souls, and, and they need not have such feelings. I but I, I guess living in the city under all that pressure does that to them. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm just happy to be from the Midwest, and just like to thank you for your show, and you're doing a great service, Art. Have a great night, sir, and thank you very much. There is a kind of an attitude that prevails in the Northeast Corridor about people in the rest of the country, and that's all right. We're bigger than they are. We need not retaliate with our own thoughts vocalized. Uh, Wildcard Line, you're on the air. Hello. Good morning, Art. Morning. I think the concealed weapon carry laws in, in uh, each various state should be integrated into a more uniform uh, concealed carry program. They're working on it. I sure hope they'd work on it soon, because if you go to New Jersey or New York, you sure can get in trouble if you're from Alabama or Georgia. Yes, I know. I know. They're, they're working on it. Now, how many states might participate in that and whether it would still apply to cities where you've got, you know, like New York City, for example, I don't know. But, you know, I think generally there's going to be reciprocity uh, among most of the states. Uh, here in Georgia, I believe we have reciprocity in about seven states surrounding us. That's excellent. But, but I had a dinner with a politician here about three years ago, and he said they'll never outlaw guns. They'll just outlaw the bullets. Yeah, I've heard that. Um, and I, I, I don't know if I buy that either. Uh, plenty of ammunition available. I don't, I don't think any of that's going to happen in our lifetimes. Now, that's not to say that in another 100, 200 years, 
they'll be outlawing phasers or something. What do I know? East of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hi. Art, it's Barry from Pennsylvania. Yes, Barry. I want to talk about the high price of gasoline. Good. Somebody, somebody better. It's out of control. Uh, I have a delivery business, and and it's costing me at least another two hundred dollars a week to run my business. See, um, that's what we need to be afraid of. Uh, people like you, sir, uh, just in business out all across America, another two hundred dollars onto the tab every week for you. And if that has not yet squeezed you out of business, just wait till it goes up another buck or buck and a half. I mean, at some point. There's a breaking point for you. See, now, my neighbor, he's an over-the-road trucker. He's independent. I'm asking him, how are you able to do this? Yeah. He's telling me that his broker is kicking him back money because they're charging the customer more. Mm -hmm. He told me his fuel bill last week out of his, his pocket. Now, mind you, he drives an 18-wheeler. Right. It was $200. He said he got over $900 back from the broker because they're subsidizing the, uh, the fuel. Well, That's how in, the over-the-road truckers are making it. That's the only. Yeah. I, I'm I'm here on the East Coast. I'm seeing two thirty, two forty a gallon for diesel. Oh yeah. Look, eventually it's coming out of the consumer's pocket. The price of everything is going to go up. This whole fuel thing could drive us right into an, an inflationary period that could knock us for a loop. I mean, I did a whole show on this. I listened. And um, and I'm right. What's your opinion? Do you feel that we are running out of gas, out of, out of uh, you know, the fuel, or do you think this is just big business trying to squeeze us? I think, sir, that the long emergency, that was the title of the article that I read. And by the way, I've scheduled the author of that Rolling Stone article on the show. Uh, so I, I thought you might be interested in that. Those of you who thought that that was an inspired article, the man who wrote it in, in person is even more inspiring, very vocal. It's called The Long Emergency. And in answer to your question, caller, no, I don't think we're running out of oil. I think that we're at the top of the bell curve, which means we have already extracted the first half of the known reserves in the world. We've already taken them out of the ground. The second half is going to be much harder, much more expensive to extract. So we're not out of oil, but the price of oil is going to spiral to a point that it could do irreparable damage to our economy. That was kind of the point made in that article, and I was so impressed with that article that not only did I read the bulk of it to you here on the air, but I also invited the author uh, who wrote for Rolling Stone magazine onto the program. That'll be here coming up in the next couple of weeks or so. Coming up next is uh, Dr. Raymond Moody. I've known Raymond for many, many years. Probably the top of his field. His field is near-death experience. It's a wild one. It'll be a wild show. Coming up next.
talk with Art Bell. Call the Wild Card Line at area code 775-727-1295. The first-time caller line is area code 775-727-1222. To talk with Art Bell from east of the Rockies, call toll-free at 800-825-5033. From west of the Rockies, call 800-618-8255. International callers may reach Art by calling your in-country Sprint Access number, pressing Option 5, and dialing toll-free 800-893-0903. From coast to coast and worldwide on the Internet, this is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. It is indeed. Uh, My guest coming up, Dr. Raymond Moody, is probably the great-grandfather of this whole near-death experience thing. He wrote the book, you may recall, Life After Life. Remember that? And uh, and many others. So, coming up in a moment, Raymond Moody is the foremost expert on the phenomenon of near-death experience, as well as a compelling lecturer on the subjects of evocation of the deceased, cult activities, out-of-body experiences, and the paranormal and the relationship of the paranormal to the performing arts and the interconnections between humor and health. Humor and health. Laugh and live. He's appeared on several national television programs as an expert guest about these subjects. He holds both a Ph.D. from the University of Virginia and M.D. from the Medical College of Georgia. An award-winning author and scholar, Dr. Moody received the World Humanitarian Award in Denmark in 1988, as well as a bronze medal in the Human Relations category at the New York Film Festival for the movie version of Life After Life. An impassioned researcher, uh, Dr. Moody first became interested in the phenomenon of near-death experiences during his medical training. How about that? Early on, since that time, he has written seven books about the subject and created the Dr. John D. Memorial Theater of the Mind, a facility that enables people to experience altered states of consciousness for the purposes of education, entertainment, and spiritual advancement. Dr. Moody, in a moment. Yes, it's been better than a decade that I've been uh, interviewing Dr. Moody. Uh, welcome to the program, Dr. Raymond Moody. Well, thank you, sir. I am so happy to be back on your program, too. Great to have you. Um, doctor, just before I got on the air tonight, I was on uh, my hobby as ham radio, and a friend of mine is a retired physician, sort of retired. I guess he still does some surgery, I believe, as a surgeon. And uh, we were discussing the fact that you were coming on on shortwave and he said well you know he didn't scoff at uh, the whole thing because he's encountered it several times in his career as a as a surgeon uh, he's encountered it so he knows about it but you know what he said he said uh, you know i can think of a number of explanations that was would satisfy both the doctors who scoff at this and the people that have the experiences and and both of them could be telling the truth is that an attitude you find among many physicians now, or? Art, that... I really think it depends very much on, um, you know, not all there is. 
physicians don't speak with one voice on this, but you know, a lot of the the people who who think that this can be readily explained tell us that they think that what this is is the um, the the uh, terminal events of the brain that as the oxygen is being deprived, the uh, uh, the the mind constructs these hallucinations, which really are just the uh, the biochemical and and electrical events taking place under those stressful circumstances in the brain. The real difficulty that I, I find with that um, are, are two things. Uh, number one, uh, we know now very well that these same experiences of getting out of the body and seeing this light and meeting up with the relatives uh, of the deceased take place not just to the patients who are who are dying, but also to the bystanders. Uh, that is, people standing around the bedside as grandma dies will tell us that as the person in the bed passes away, they themselves leave their physical bodies, uh, say goodbye to their grandmother that they now see there in spirit form, see grandma recede into this light, and see relatives and friends of the deceased person seem to to come to meet them and to, to have a, a reunion. And then, uh, as, as this experience closes off, they feel themselves drawn back into their bodies and standing there beside the now deceased body of the person in the bed. Um, there's not any question of the bystanders having any physiological distress. They're not even sick. No, but again, let's go back to the person having the experience. Uh, there are physiological facts that are occurring. There are things that are occurring. The oxygen deprivation is real, and, and there are changes going on in the brain. So yes, from, sir, a, and from a pure, pure, purely medical perspective, doctor, what would the expectation be? Well, I think that, you know, before I went to medical school, I, I uh, had philosophy training. I got my... Ph.D. in philosophy, and the real difficulty here is is what's called the mind-body problem, and and that is that um, we just don't really have any idea how the mind is related to the body. I mean, this is not in any way to uh, to denigrate the the uh, uh, neurophysiological research of, uh, and and so on. I mean, obviously there are correlations but the the real problem philosophically is that uh, we just can't comprehend how all of these physiological events um, relate to consciousness even if we had a complete map of every single biochemical event taking place in the brain that still doesn't add up to our inner experience of consciousness there is still an unfathomable gap there, and that's what we call the mind-body problem. You know, it's very easy for people, especially, I think, in the early stages of their career, to um, to uh, fall prey to what's called epiphenomenalism, and epiphenomenalism is the point of view that um, what we experience in, as consciousness is 
is uh, just a sort of an illusion, and that the real, where the action is, the the reality, or, or is the brain process, the electrical and chemical events taking place in the brain. Hmm. All right, and Doctor, that's just Doctor, a, I'm sorry. I, if I can just ask one question before I, I forget it, mm-hmm. and that is, um, it, I've heard that it's possible to create this near-death experience, this separation from the body experience, with electrical stimulation to certain part of the brain, a uh, certain part of the brain. Is that is that true? Yes, and not just by um, by uh, various kinds of brain stimulation, but also, as the shamans knew, by all sorts of other techniques as well. Even uh, gazing into a mirror will, will do it. You know, the many uh, shamans... Um, catapulted themselves over into other realms of reality by mirror gazing or as with the Cherokee gazing into clear ponds and lakes and so on or uh, conditions of sensory deprivation or or sometimes just spontaneously you know um, it's a fairly common experience uh, apparently for astronomers standing at, uh, and gazing into the interstellar reaches through their telescopes mm-hmm. to have um, out-of-body experiences, or or uh, performing artists uh, playing great music sometimes talk about these out-of-body experiences. What I'm telling you really is that I don't know. I mean, there's all kinds of people who will give you firm opinions. Um, well, I, I, had a, I had a caller uh, in the last hour who screamed uh, toward the end of his call something about DMT and then laughed hysterically and hung up. Um, so that would, might be another yet another. Well, yes, there are drugs that can do it. I mean, but but still, the real difficulty I think is um, what is the relationship between the mind and the body? And I just I am very comfortable with saying I don't know. Until we solve that one, I think that this is all going to remain a question mark. I mean, I'm not putting down the people who do these kinds of various uh, various kinds of experiments where they induce these experiences um uh, well none of it invalidates uh anyway um my my friend the doctor had one more thing to say to me he said of all the people that i've had contact with as a physician who had this experience one thing i can tell you for sure it had a profound and lasting effect it changed their lives there you go, and that's the most intriguing part of this to me. I mean, it's really fascinating to to see this, how this uh, this experience continues to unfold in their lives, even um, decades and decades later. That's right. The first person I ever talked with personally who had such an experience was in 1965. It was Dr. George Ritchie, who was then a psychiatry professor at the University of Virginia, and I was a third-year philosophy major at UVA at that time. Mm-hmm. Three years before that, I had read an identical account in Plato's Republic, which is how I first got interested in this. And then when I heard it um, three years later from Dr. Ritchie, I realized that it was not just an ancient Greek phenomenon, and so I've been following Dr. Ritchie now for 40 years, and in all that time I can just absolutely say without any uh, hesitation that he remains the finest person I've ever known in my life and obviously profoundly moved by this experience, um, 
decades and decades after it happened. Well, to get you um, sort of re-aimed in your career in this direction, it must have taken a very profound experience of somebody's or that you were part of to, to move you this way. Yes, it has been, although as I reflect on my career, uh, really all of the major things in my career were pretty much set uh, back in 1962 when I took a really fascinating course on the ancient Greek uh, classics and learned all about these oracles of the dead, the, the institutions in ancient Greece where people went to actually call up the spirits of the deceased. And uh, read Plato's reflections about near-death experiences and so on, and uh, just sort of continued to trace those uh, lines of thought out in, throughout my career, and have been become really, as as happens to most scholars, I think, uh, increasing, increasingly baffled about this. I mean, um, uh, it, one of the easiest things for me to say is, I don't know. All right. Well, having said that. Um, <laughs> It's been quite a while since we talked to you last. What are the new developments in the near-death world? Uh, there must have been quite some numbers since we last spoke. Um, experiments are ongoing. Um, the experiences are ongoing. What's new? Uh, you know, I think that um, uh, the thing that's come out in, in recent years because of changes in our population has been the uh, the, the rise of a tidal wave, really, of these empathic death experiences, um, experiences where the people standing beside the bed say that they have the same experience that we, uh, that we know of now as the near-death experience. That's a really a new one to me. Uh, how common is it? Um, Art, I think that these probably now are just as common as near-death experiences, maybe even more so. The first one I heard was in 1972 from one of my own professors of medicine who said that her mother uh, collapsed and had a cardiac arrest right uh, in front of her, and she uh, uh, vigorously tried to resuscitate her mother, and her mother did pass away. But she said uh, from her experience, she... Um, as her mother died, she actually got out of her own body, looked down, saw her own body standing beside her mother's now deceased body, trying to resuscitate it. Uh, to use her exact words, I was trying to get my bearings, she said, and looked around, saw her own mother, again to use her word, now in spirit form, there beside her, uh, said, her uh, said her goodbyes to her mother, saw her mother's spirit recede off into the distance toward this light, saw relatives and friends, some of them she recognized as friends of her mother's who had died, others she didn't know, but she surmised they had been uh, friends or relatives who, of her mother's who, died, who had died before she was even born, and uh, saw them all, uh, after this reunion, be sort of drawn back into this uh, aperture, as she said, a bright light beaming from it. She said as this aperture closed, it closed like the, the lens of a camera does, spiraling down. And then she found herself there beside the body of her now deceased um, mother. I think probably in 1972 those were quite rare. Um, when I went to medical school in 72, the uh, the practice we all fell into, because this is what everybody did, 
was that when the patient was dying, the doctors and nurses would come in and we would sort of usher the family out under the theory that this would be too overwhelming for them. Of course. Uh, Nowadays, in the intervening 30 years, it's changed entirely. And uh, it's much more common that the doctors and nurses make themselves scarce and And encourage the family to be there. And that coupled together with the... uh, the fact that the baby boomers are now losing their parents in huge numbers right. and are there at the bedside when this happens. I think it's bringing around a, a tidal wave of these things. Okay, that's a good answer. But w- just if you want to guess for me, you're welcome to guess. Mm-hmm. What does this suggest about the, the nature of the event itself? In other words, is it a local event that perhaps has some sort of field or some sort of area of influence that goes beyond the the, the immediate area of the person dying? Maybe so, maybe so. And you know, I, I mean, having been there at the bedside of a lot of patients as they passed away, and including now quite a number of my own relatives, uh, definitely there is a sense in which something very extraordinary and in, even indescribable goes on. Um, it's, it does feel like some sort of opening takes place. And, huh. and you know, once in a while things happen at, at the bedside of a dying person that just really have... They don't make a bit of sense. Uh, for example... Time after time, you see cases where patients are terminally ill. They're just uh, withering away. They lapse into obtundation. They become unconscious. Looks like everyone standing around just assumes that they'll never see uh, grandma again, and, the, and yet the breathing and the heartbeat go, goes on sometimes for days on end. Everybody assumes that they'll never have any conscious contact with this person again. Right. Um, and then everybody's just kind of waiting for their heart's heart to stop beating. And suddenly, Grandma sits up in the bed. If you have seen this, and I'm sure a lot of listeners have actually seen this, you will know what I'm talking about when I say they seem more alive than alive. It's absolutely uncanny. I, I, I have heard over the years of this moment of absolute lucidity just yes. before death. Is it, That's what you're talking about. Yes. It even has a, a name. It's called Fey, F-E-Y. If you look up in the dictionary, it's a, high, it's a state of uh, heightened awareness that portends imminent death. And they call their relatives together. They can even give a message to everybody standing around the bedside. Is there any physiological explanation for this? Not that I know of. I mean, I mean, you know, it's easy to, for people to say, oh, there's a sudden surge of adrenaline and the neurotransmitters and all, but, but the question is, how do we know? I mean, it's, uh, I think that people are so threatened by this in, in a way that uh, they're nat- naturally drawn to throw some sort of explanation at it. As I said, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just... To me, um, one thing that's so curious about this, and again, I'm sure that lots and lots of people who work in hospices and with the terminally ill will know exactly what I'm talking about about this, that it seems that they almost light up. Uh, There's um, almost a glow that comes from them. So ten years ago or so, a guy from Australia 
came all the way uh, from from Australia. Doc, doctor, hold that story. Uh, we'll get right back to it. We're at a break point here at the bottom of the hour. Faye, that moment of absolute lucidity. Fascinating stuff uh, from a fascinating man. Dr. Raymond Moody, foremost researcher on near death in the world. From the high desert in the midst of the night, which is where we belong. Of course, this is Coast to Coast AM. Good morning. The first-time caller line is area code 775-727-1222. To talk with Art Bell from east of the Rockies, call toll-free at 800-825-5033. From west of the Rockies, call Art at 800-618-8255. International callers may reach Art Bell by calling your in-country Sprint Access number, pressing option 5 and dialing toll-free 800-893-0903. From coast to coast and worldwide on the Internet, this is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. It is indeed an honor to have the world's expert on near-death experiences, Dr. Raymond Moody, with us this night. He'll be right back. This whole thing of, um, of people adjacent to those who die having an experience uh, and that now being mostly family members. I, I, I certainly do understand that these days the doctors and healthcare professionals uh, toward the last do tend to perhaps evaporate in terminal cases, allowing the family close by. So now, of course, the families are reporting these kinds of experiences 
where they were not previously, simply because most of them were not present. As the doctor said, they tend to be ushered away. But to me, that would mean that um, the healthcare professionals, the doctors, the nurses, the ones who were there for the most part during the last moments of a person's life, would have had those experiences and uh, perhaps didn't report them? Or do you think, doctor, just before we get back to the story you were telling, do you think that uh, they simply became immune to them in some way by blocking them in some way? In other words, not wanting to have them. You know, um, back in the 70s, uh, I actually heard quite a number of stories from doctors who told me precisely that, that they uh, had all sorts of experiences like that when patients uh, uh, died, including uh, seeming to see the, uh, the person leave the body. Huh. Um, and so, uh, and, and yeah, I heard this quite a bit back in the uh, 70s, both from doctors and nurses. Did I, any of them report they were able to block them in any way, in other words, become professionally detached to the point that they were not affected? Not to, not uh, that I, I don't remember ever hearing anyone um, say that. As a matter of fact, I remember a very nice oncologist I met back in about 1973 or 4 uh, telling me that he had made it a routine that um, when, when his patient passed away, he would stay in the room with them for about 30 minutes or so talking with them. Really? Because uh, he had no idea whether these near-death experiences he had heard were, quote, real, unquote, or not. Yes. Uh, but uh, rather that, that he uh, was convinced that at least from the perspective of the patient, something was still going on, and so he would stay around with people to, to oh. comfort them. You know, you know, I think um, as in any other profession, there are all kinds of different personalities, and, and to some people this would be very threatening, but, um, you know, in our society there's a certain tendency, I think, to uh, villainize doctors and, uh, and so on, but some of the kindest and, and uh, most sensitive people I've known in the course of my life have been physicians. After all, that's why most of them go into, into medicine, is that they want to help people, and I've heard quite a number of... Um, um, reports like this from physicians. You know, Art, one thing I hear all the time is that, uh, oh, poor Dr. Moody, he suffered under the medical profession. Uh, you know, they tried to drum him out of the, uh, the medical um, profession because of this research and so on. And, and that makes a really great story, so much so I wish it was true almost. Because my wife says that I do have a little bit of a martyr complex. <laughs> Um, but in the reality, um, when I went to medical school in 72, I had already been researching this for years. And um, so uh, since I went the Ph.D. in philosophy route, some of my friends that I'd grown up with were ahead of me in medical school. Some of them were residents and so on. So by the time I entered medical school in September of 72, my friends had spread the word among the faculty, this student coming in in September, oh, no. was doing this research. Oh, no. And they knew about it ahead of time? Well, as a matter of fact, yes. And within oh. two weeks, Art, <laughs> I can 
I can sit here and remember eight professors that went out of their way. There probably were more, but I remember eight went out of their way to to contact me and to say uh, either, thank God you're doing this research because I had this experience myself, or the others said, thank God you're doing this research because I've seen this with my patients and I'm really curious. Gee, I I would have thought the opposite. I I would have thought they'd have made the life of a young medical student who believed this kind of thing totally miserable. Well, you know, like I said, that that's a better story. <laughs> but uh, the fact is, is quite otherwise. Uh, uh, matter of fact, just very shortly after I got to medical school, Claude Star Wright, who was one of my hematology professors, I, as I recall, he was the first one to telephone me and, and uh, uh, came o- over to my house to see me and talk about this because, um, you know, a lot of physicians were, were seeing this right after light. Life After Life was published in 1975, I started getting letters from all over the country from physicians who had been finding this among their own patients. So um, sure. the, the techniques of cardiopulmonary resuscitation were so widely available at that time that this was just happening to lots and lots of people. All right. I didn't want to take you away from your story, um, the Australian story altogether. So... Yes, talking about this man who came to see me from Australia, and what had happened to him was that his wife, they had been married many, many years, uh, had a terrible illness, and she was just withering away. And um, one day, he was um, he was uh, going to go out to the store for a few minutes, and so he just went into sat beside his wife who was in bed. And he said that she was transformed. He, 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 yeah, she seemed healthier than he had ever seen her before. And so, of course, at this point, he concluded, oh, my God, she's, she's getting better. She's going to live through this. And they had a very heartfelt conversation. Was it Faye? Was it Faye? Yeah, absolutely, that she, uh, she was uh, right there on the verge of death. And so he went out of the house expecting that, you know, that his wife was going to recover. Yes. And when she came back, when he came back a few minutes ago, uh, later, um, she had passed away. And so just before death, there's this dramatic turnaround. And as he was um, describing this to me, I wish I could portray for you the look that he had on his face. He said that as he reflected on this incident subsequently, he said... I felt at that point, he said, that she already had one foot on the other side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is very dramatic and very memorable. To, and I'm sure, quite sure, that lots and lots of people who are listening to us tonight uh, can relate experiences like this from their own families and so on. There's no doubt about it. Um, what about near-death experiences of people who have attempted suicide. Are they in any way different? No, they're not. And the person who's an expert on this is Dr. Bruce Grayson of the University of Virginia, who, like me, has interviewed thousands of patients with near-death experiences, beginning, uh, Bruce did, in in 1975 was the first uh, case of this he found. And Bruce is an emergency psychiatrist, so... In a typical week's work, he gets to interview several people who've attempted to kill themselves. And um, 
some do and some do not have near-death experiences under these circumstances. So what Bruce did was to to follow these two groups uh, for a long period thereafter. And he found that whereas the people who did not have a near-death experience when they attempted suicide continued to have a high rate of subsequent attempts to kill themselves, oh. the people who did have a near-death experience had an essentially zero rate oh. of any further attempts. Okay, I, one other quick question. Um, of Forget suicides for a second. Of those who have near-death experiences... What percentage report uh, report uh, an NDE what, of, of those who go into, you know, clinical arrest? What, what percentage actually report NDEs? It's rather small, isn't it? It is rather small, interestingly. And uh, there was a study uh, reported in the British Journal of Medicine a few years back uh, that did a study of, I think, 600-plus, uh, survivors of cardiac arrest in Holland yes. and found, as I recall, that about 18% of them reported these experiences. But you know, oh. an interesting thing that I have uh, noted over the years is that there seems to me to be a tendency whereas, uh, whereby older physicians, like people who have been in the business for a long time, tend to estimate this as higher. They, in other words, the older they get, the higher the percentage that they estimate. Um, I talked oh, in about 1980 with a um, with a cardiologist at at St. Luke's in Denver. Um, and what was that guy's name? Uh, it will come to me. But uh, anyway, he was a very experienced cardiologist, and he told me that he thought that about 60 percent of the patients that underwent a cardiac arrest. Um, uh, experience something like this. Fred Schoonmaker was his name. And Fred was the kind of guy that you could naturally talk with. You know, he's just very easygoing and so on. And I think there's probably some, um, my guess is that, that um, patients would be less likely to talk with someone who, who came on as, as a sort of harsh um, uh, and scolding figure, whereas they might be more likely to open up to someone who's uh, more easygoing and personable. And so that's a factor that, that makes it, I think, essentially impossible to get a really accurate estimate. I, I'm sure there's a lot of don't ask, don't tell philosophy mm-hmm. uh, here, no doubt about it. So some percentage, no doubt, just simply never reported. I can understand that. It would still have a profound effect on their lives, I'm sure. Can you describe the typical, is there a typical NDE, doctor, that you could describe, uh, or are, do they vary so very much? I, I, I guess it would be interesting if more of them had similarities than not, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, uh, there are variations, uh, wide variations, but uh, they are, they seem to be uh, variations within limits, and that is that uh, there's about 15 or so common elements that crop up again and again in many stories. And one person um, may have three or four of those things, or or nine or, or seven or eight, or nine or ten, or the whole spectrum of it. And um, it looks as though uh, the longer a person is in a state of cardiac arrest, the more likely they seem to be to uh, report uh, more of these features. So it seems that the experience gets deeper the longer the cardiac 
arrests persist. And how many of these are reported as positive versus negative? Um, well, um, most of them are reported as positive. In this, this uh, part of the experience where people say that they see their whole life portrayed around them in a panorama, yes. they see everything they've ever done there at once uh, in full color, uh, three dimensions, and when they re-witness the events of their lives, they see them not from the perspective they had when they were doing these things, but rather they are watching themselves as a third person. And when they see themselves doing some, something unkind or unloving to uh, a fellow human being, yes. uh, they feel empathically the bad feelings they've brought about in this other person's life. Um, and and uh, conversely, when they see themselves doing something loving to someone else, they, they feel the good feelings. And in, in, in that situation, obviously, I mean, all of us have done things that, uh, I mean, I'm not looking forward to uh, <laughs> seeing a review of my life, let's put nor, it that way. Nor am and, I. And so um, there's always uh, unpleasant aspects of it. What people say, though, retrospectively about this uh, panorama is that they're very glad they went through it because it um, convinces them that what uh, uh, life is all about is trying to learn to love and uh, and to um, and to growing in wisdom um, in terms of the really negative uh, hellish experiences yes. or you know what yes. I think um, I, again, I would have to refer to the work here of Dr. Bruce Grayson, who's done a special study of uh, negative near-death experiences, and he finds, number one, number one, that they seem distinctly rare compared to the other uh, more positive near-death experiences that we think of, and that, secondly, there's a lot more variability to them, um, that they fall into three major categories. I forget the first two categories, but the third and rarest category of them is the full-blown hellish experiences. Uh -huh. Now, there's a certain kind of mentality. I call them the funda Christians, although they could be the funda anythings. Uh, you know, they kind of are, they kind of want there to be a lot of hellish experiences to back up their religious ideology. I wonder, I wonder if many of these report this uh, life review, because I've often thought that life review is a way of causing you or making you judge yourself. And so I wonder if the hellish, <laughs> the hellish experience follows that life review, or if, if the negative ones even report a life review. That would be interesting, and I think that, um, that that's a very difficult thing to 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 figure out now because number one they they seem distinctly rare and number two because as it now appears uh, one of the fundamentalists who wrote a very lurid book on this uh, with all these alleged hellish near-death experiences he had found it looks as though he probably was making it up at least that I mean it he, he was quoted as saying someplace, well, you got to scare people to convert them and so on. Yes. So, um, and I just don't trust that information. I trust Dr. Bruce Grayson, who did, a, uh, I think, a very uh, thorough and thoughtful study on this. And he, he says that they, they occur, certainly, but they seem to be rare.
And 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 uh, but then what do you make of that? I mean, just because you there are not many uh, hellish near death experiences, you can't infer anything about uh, hell from it. I mean, I I just don't know. All right. Uh, what would be the most fascinating NDE you've ever heard? There is certainly one for me. I, I did one on the show with a gal named Sarah that I'll never get over for the rest of my life. Uh-huh. Uh, what an interview. Went on for about an hour and a half. She had every detail down. It was astounding. It just floored me when it happened. Every time I listen to it, I've listened since, it floors me. I mean, it just profoundly affected me. Uh-huh. Uh, how about you? You know, one that I know of, or that uh, uh, actually I haven't talked with this woman personally. I know her ex-husband, who who is a psychiatrist, but um, I know of this case from a friend of mine, Dr. Michael Sabom, who's a cardiologist who studies uh, near-death experiences in Atlanta, and he has directly interviewed this woman. Her name is Pam, and oh, some years ago. Um, Back back in the in the nineties, uh, Pam, who was at that time in her thirties and a very uh, uh, respected figure in the arts community in Atlanta, was found to have an inoperable brain aneurysm, and uh, and that is that it was in such a position that if the surgeons had gone in, it would have burst and she would have died on the table. Right. But the family was just not willing to accept this, so they they. Uh, searched and searched, and in Phoenix, they found a surgeon who was doing a radical new procedure. So they went out to Phoenix, and the following procedure was done to Pam. She was placed on a rotating operating table. Oh, God. She was, her uh, body was cooled. Oh, I know, Uh, I know this. Doctor, listen, we're coming... Up to a break. The, the, yeah, that's right, we are. But it, all of a sudden, like a ton of bricks, it fell on me. I know who you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I interviewed Pam. Oh, good. Um, so, wonderful. Hold it right there, Dr. Moody. As a matter of fact, uh, either that case or one like it was on 60 Minutes. It, it's a remarkable story. Dr. Raymond Moody is my guest. Get a shiver in the dark, it's raining in the park. Want to time travel? Go back to past shows on Streamlink. Sign up online at coasttocoastam.com.
talk with Art Bell. Call the Wild Card Line at area code 775-727-1295. The first-time caller line is area code 775-727-1222. To talk with Art Bell from east of the Rockies, call toll-free at 800-825-5033. From west of the Rockies, call 800-618-8255. International callers may reach Art by calling your in-country Sprint Access number, pressing Option 5, and dialing toll-free 800-893-0903. From coast to coast and worldwide on the Internet, this is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. Speaking of worldwide, my guest is the worldwide expert, the world's expert on NDEs, life after death. Whatever it is that happens as we approach the door of death, we'll be right back. The story you're about to hear is just astounding. I mean, try and imagine an aneurysm in the brain. That's like, um, I don't know, it's like a blood vessel that in one part has sort of weakened and turned into a balloon, getting thinner and thinner as it expands. And, of course, when it explodes, which is what an aneurysm can do, well, then you're dead. The brain floods with blood, I guess, and you're dead. Well, Pam had an aneurysm, an inoperable aneurysm. Doctor? And so... Um, the family found a surgeon in Phoenix who did a uh, radically new procedure. Um, they, they took Pam out to Phoenix, and she uh, was put on a rotating operating table, and her, bodily, her body was progressively cooled until she became extremely hypothermic, very low body temperature. And then they stopped her heart. Stopped her heart. They took the top of her head off and then rotated the table so that she was upside down and they drained all the blood from her body. All the blood out of her body. That's so right. obviously then everything's shut down. Brainwave flat. That's right. Isn't that right? That's right. And, and, and no, no heart pumping, no blood in the body, all the blood out of the body. This person is... Yes, by the criteria that I learned at medical school, certainly. She She was was dead, dead. very dead. Yep. And so um, then, of course, since there's no pressure in the arteries anymore, then they could go in and they could take that aneurysm and repair it. And then once they did that... Without the blood, it would deflate like a balloon. That's right. And so then there it just deflated, and I guess they, they can clip it out, sew it up. That's right. No more danger of hemorrhage. So that's what they did. How long did that take? Um, you know, I don't remember. Well, I do. Um, about 40 minutes about total. About 40 minutes. So this woman was dead, mm-hmm. in effect, uh, clinically in every way you could measure, Well, for, yeah. for 40 minutes. Yeah, you know, I talked with her husband about this in Winston-Salem, and uh, he, was, he was marveling about it. And I said, well, you know, um, that means that by the criteria you and I, learned she was dead and he said yep dead as a doornail and so then they uh then they sewed the top of her head back on put her body back horizontally began to uh 
reinfuse the blood into her body, gradually warming her up. Uh When her body got to a certain temperature, they restarted her heart, and she came back to life and is vibrantly alive. And with this incredible story of passing out of her body, um, relating conversations that went on during the surgery, um, she she told Michael Sabom, my friend in Atlanta, who interviewed her about this, that she was describing how um, certain um, uh, tools they used in the in the surgery looked, and she, she described one as looking like a uh, an electric toothbrush. And you know, cardiologists are not heart surgeons, so Mike Michael, being a cardiologist, listened to this, and to him, it didn't ring true. He just didn't believe the part about the electric toothbrush. But anyway, he got in touch with the um, cardi- uh, with the heart surgeon in Phoenix who sent him a photograph back of the instrumentation used, and there was that instrument that looked like the electric toothbrush. And so Pam describes this voyage out of her body, went into this other realm, was escorted back down through this tunnel or passageway, by an uncle, as I recall, and then came back into her body and is is fully alive. I saw an interview with the surgeon who did this procedure, and he, you know, he obviously was just quite incomprehending and startled by by what she said. And, and it, it, as it as the interview made it appear, certainly uh, just couldn't comprehend uh, how, how this could be. As I myself can't comprehend how it. I, I can't comprehend of it any of it. I I, I, I can't grasp any nope. of it. Where was she for forty minutes? Where was right. Pam? That's right. Yeah, or you know, it just really doesn't stack up. I mean, I and I've heard other things. I um um. Well, I mean, there are just so many. I, I'll tell you what. Let me uh, hold you there for a second. I, I've got kind of a special personal line somebody um uh, tom uh a doctor uh, sent me a quick computer message and i'm very very tempted to bring him on with you for just a second uh, tom are you there tom is a physician right tom i'm an emergency physician in washington state an emergency physician in washington state for how long tom uh 23 years 23 years and you have something you want to say i've been uh I'm a board-certified emergency physician, and I've been doing this for a very long time and, and uh, have attended the deaths of an awful lot of people. And I can't believe that the story that your guest just told sort of meshes in with um, the story that happened to me. Um, I was in the emergency department uh, late one evening when a woman had a cardiac arrest at a restaurant, and she had... Uh, completely collapsed, was unresponsive, and they called the ambulance. The ambulance drove down about uh, six or eight blocks, caught an elevator up, the service elevator, up to where she was at, and when they found her, she was completely unresponsive and in ventricular fibrillation. There's no blood flow to her brain at all. And when they um, arrived at the scene, they put a breathing tube in her and gave her some electric shocks, and her heart started breathing. And it was about five minutes. It was at the very, very out, the very, very longest that people who suffer this kind of event come back with right. any kind of uh, 
uh, meaningful um, intellectual activity. Right. I mean, she was way out there. Um, when she arrived in the emergency department about 15 minutes later, um, she was, for all practical purposes, next to brain dead. If you imagine your house with all the lights on, it's a normal person. Um, there was one bathroom light on. I mean, it was that little tiny thing that you plug into the right. electric switch. That was all that was left. She had a gag reflex if you pulled on the endotracheal tube, and there was no other response uh, in her. Um, her um, she was admitted to the intensive care unit and cared for and eventually discharged from the hospital. And I sort of lost follow-up on this lady. About a year later, I was in the emergency department. There was this perky red lady complaining of some chest problems on the on the uh, stretcher, and I walked in and introduced myself. We had a little chat, and then I went back and looked at her old records, and there was this record of this lady who had had a just horrible cardiac arrest and was uh, next to brain dead when I admitted her to the hospital. And I said, my God, how did things go after your cardiac arrest? Mm-hmm. And she said, well, they couldn't get me through the kitchen. They couldn't get me through the kitchen. They couldn't get me through the kitchen. And I go, what? And says, all I remember about my cardiac arrest was is they couldn't get me through the kitchen. And as there are things that happen, there's serendipitous events, and at the very same time that this lady was in the emergency department on her second visit, the medic who had resuscitated her in that restaurant was in my lounge eating dinner. And I asked him to come over and explain this situation. He goes, he said, oh, my God, we could not get in. He didn't, he didn't hear me tell, talk with her. Right. This is a completely unrelated event. I said, Wayne, what happened to this lady at, the, at this uh, arrest at the restaurant a year ago? And he goes, oh, we couldn't get her through the kitchen. <laughs> the hallways in the kitchen, through the through the, the winding corridors, through those tables, you couldn't get the stretcher through the kitchen. And no. they jammed their stretcher in the kitchen. They couldn't get her out through the kitchen. No way she could have known that. But no way she could have known it. And here, these two independent people collaborate this story that they couldn't get her through the kitchen. Well, there you go. Yep. Uh, there you go. So, so thank you, doctor. Thank you very much. Uh, there, there is one, uh, Doctor Moody, from another physician. I, I, there's no way. I mean, somebody whose heart has stopped. Well, you know, I just, I yes, yes, I remain baffled by this. You know, I've had all kinds of experiences in my medical practice. Certainly not as much experience with resuscitations as sure as I'm sure uh, Tom has had. Although a lot of that, even with the resuscitations, but primarily uh, most of the people I've taken care of were, were terminally ill people that we didn't resuscitate. And um, even in situations like that, some astonishing things happen. There, one, one event occurred years ago now that I just still scratch my head and just marvel. Um, Basically, this is still a very personal story that I uh, um, can't divulge everything about it, but um, let's put it this way. I, I was um, dealing with a terminal patient, um, and um, 
was was seeing him in his house and um, didn't know this man that well. I, I knew some of the family members, but but I didn't know this man that well. He certainly didn't know any personal details about my life. And on this one day that I was going to see him, I had this gosh-awful, entirely personal, and this is the part I can relate, but it just something that I was working on then. It was totally unrelated to this, this case of this man. But it was just a problem that was just gosh-awful and unique to me. This was a very unique kind of situation and a problem that had come up in my personal life, not in my professional life. Yes. And I was just worried to death, worried sick about this all day. Well, that evening, I went over to this person's house, and when I walked in the door, his daughter came up and she said we just can't figure it out she said all day he's been going on and on about and then she said my exact problem that was bugging me that day now you know i mean i'm sure many many other physicians could share similar things with you it's it's a I mean, and there's not really any way, I think, within the current uh, logic that we use of computing this or or figuring these things out. But certainly when they happen to you, they're quite, um, I mean, they are life-changing. Oh, yes. This happened uh, well over ten years ago now, this thing I'm talking about, and I still think about it almost every day. It's absolutely bewildering to me. Doctor, do you think there is any difference in the number of NDEs that occur to people who are anticipating death versus those who get into some sort of flash accident. Uh, and I'm asking this for, an, I hope, an obvious reason. If you're anticipating death in our modern day, we've had so much on the air in the media about NDEs that one might imagine a person would have an expectation build up or even certainly be thinking very hard about the possibility of an afterlife as they near their death. They know it's coming. They know they've got a fatal disease or whatever versus somebody who, kaboom, gets into an accident, uh, didn't see it coming, didn't even give it a moment's thought, and there it is. Art, I don't know, but I will say one thing about it, uh, about that is that... Um you know, back in the 60s and early 70s when I was interviewing uh, people, I had a sort of clear field, as it was, because there wasn't really any publicity till the mid-70s. Right. I had a long period of time when I had uh, people who had never heard of this. And, and in, the, in, the, in 2005, when this has been so publicized, I think uh, you and I, being people who follow the media, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, you're talking to a two or three hour CNN, a two or three hour a day CNN man here. Yes. You know, um, and, um, me too. So we follow the news and we see what's going on and so we naturally assume that, um, that people more, you know, are like us. But what I have learned in my practice really is, um, that I, I, that doesn't seem to be a, a very accurate assumption. Okay. Um, not too long ago, I worked with some cardiologists who had a practice of um, 
and because of their cardiology practice, basically it was mostly, uh, you know, sort of well-off middle-aged men, business people, who, who in their practice, who you know had, had the typical uh, midlife or you know seventy in, uh, into their seventies heart attack, and had spent their whole life sort of preoccupied with their business and the workaday world and so on, and suddenly would have this cardiac arrest and then have these experiences. Well, mm-hmm. uh, they had one of their patients had a dramatic experience like this, which draw, brought it to the attention of these cardiologists. So I was living not too far away from where their practice was, so they would call me when they got interested in this, and they would call me occasionally when they had patients who had this sort of experience. And I was just fascinated that uh, these people who were quite well off and you would think to be very uh, informed, um, uh, certainly very intelligent and accomplished people, uh, didn't have a clue about this. I mean, yeah, they would just be flabbergasted when I, after I would do my interview and so on, and they would say, "Well, doctor, have you ever heard anything like this before?" And I would sure assure them that, uh, "Oh, well, yes. I mean, this is quite, you know, this is exactly the kind of story I've heard from thousands of people." And even though at that time there had been abundant um, publicity about it, these people just hadn't heard of it. So I think that you and I because of our habits, probably tend to think, sort of to overestimate the degree of awareness that people have of this. Well, perhaps so. But in the, still, in this modern day, as people approach death, surely the thoughts of whether it's really all over or whether something else... Oh, that part, yes. I mean, and that goes back to antiquity. You know, I remember in the very first few pages or so of Plato's Republic... There's this, this same story that uh, certainly as people age, uh, when they get into their 60s and so on, and they can, uh, they begin to think, uh-oh, you know, my well, dad. Yeah. That they, it really does. Then they really start thinking about this in a, in a very uh, deep way. Well, of course, more is gone than is to go. I mean, that's that's, right. that's clear. So. Do you have any advice for those of us who are now getting on in age and have to begin thinking about things like this? Well, one thing I want to say is the sad thing is that uh, it's kind of like when it's the 11th hour uh, and, and it's a race against time. Well, that's not the uh, the ideal circumstance for logical thinking. No. Um, uh, plus, and especially as we both know, in that sort of circumstance, people get very vulnerable to charlatans. I mean, you and I both know that there are plenty of people around who will give people the answers, right? I oh, mean, sure. uh, and you're like, oh, well, you know, I want to know whether there's a life after death. Well, sure, buddy, I've got the answers for you here. And, uh, and of course, that, that's a very hazardous situation. Um, you know, actually, Art, something that I have been working on, actually it's my my oldest continuous work. It goes back to 1963 was when I, I started working on it. Um, that um, I have been uh, working out a whole new kind of logic. Um, and, and I do think, actually, that it's possible uh, for people, um, and, and especially maybe people... Um, who are of older age because, uh, you know, when I went to college back in 62... I'm sorry, it's possible for them to what? 
to uh, to really uh, to really get closer to the truth about this. You know, I've been telling you for years. I think that when somebody says, "Oh, I've got scientific evidence of life after death," no. that's bogus. But but I do think that we're on the verge of having a whole new way of thinking about this that actually will make it possible to think out this and to come to get closer to the truth. Maybe one life. day a scientific explanation will be possible. Dr. Raymond Moody is my guest. I, I wonder what that would do to the world, don't you? If science said, we've got it, we've got the proof, there is life after death. What would that do to the world? Talk with Art Bell. Call the Wildcard line at area code 775-727-1295. The first-time caller line is area code 775-727-1222. To talk with Art Bell from east of the Rockies, call toll-free at 800-825-5033. From west of the Rockies, call Art at 800-618-8255. International callers may reach Art Bell by calling your in-country Sprint Access number, pressing option 5. And dialing toll-free 800-893-0903. From coast to coast and worldwide on the Internet, this is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. Boy, I'll tell you, if a woman can be dead in every clinical manner for 40 minutes and then come back with a big story, if people can tell us about not being able to get through a kitchen door when their heart was stopped, no blood was moving, well... All of these things mean we don't know a lot about the brain. We certainly don't know much about the process of death itself. In fact, that, that alone is pretty scary. What if, what if when we die, we don't intellectually die right away? Uh, what if we are aware of things around us for quite a while after they've zipped up the bag? That's something to think about. If 
patients know what's going on while their heart stopped and while the blood's not moving, the brain's not being nourished, then that means we just don't understand all that much about death and the process of death and what really is death. Uh, I mean, we define it in, in a certain way, but what if we're wrong, doctor? Well, you know, I think we probably are wrong. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, um, by definition, the big, the big mysteries of existence are big mysteries, and um, you know, to me, it just seems rather foolhardy for anybody to think that uh, that they would have a clear notion about that. Um, I mean, let's hypothesize that there is some kind of life after death, then at the very minimum we can sort of imagine that it's, it's a, it's a trans, transformation of some kind that's far more dramatic than, than we have ever experienced yes. while we're alive. Even just unimaginable. So, in a way, all bets are off. I mean, even the people who've come come very close to death, the, about the most common thing they tell us is that they just don't have any words to describe what they went through. And they also say that time and space, as you and I appreciate it, evaporate mm -hmm. at that point, so that they find themselves in a timeless, spaceless existence that... Uh, they can't even describe. I'm curious. After all the work, years of work that, and research that you've put into this area, have you come to the point, honestly, that you can you can tell me that you're you're very comfortable that when you die, there is an existence that goes beyond that physical death. Are you certain of that? Not now, doctor. In the way a religious person is comforted. Uh, uh, no, no, no huh? I am absolutely not. Now no. I will say this. <laughs> That number one, I think there's three ways to, that people have for, to settle this question for themselves, which is the biggest question of all, of is course. their life after death. You bet. Some people say that they have faith that, that determines them, it for them. I respect those people, but I'm not in that category. Other people have had some experience, like a near-death experience, that settles it for them, and I respect that group, but I'm not in that category. The only path left to me is reason. And the fact is that it's just to be, I think that if, if, if people, if people resort to reason about the near death, about the question of life after death, yes. they really need to acknowledge to themselves that what's that all, what that's all about is that they are looking for the unique legitimacy that reason provides. Because, you know, I mean, nobody balances their checkbook by consulting the astrology column, right? But, but the reason you use arithmetic is that you know as long as you follow the rules, you're going to get the same answer that the bank does or that the computer does or whatever. And that's the point of reason, that, that it gives us a legitimate answer, but the, the legitimacy comes from following the rules. So often, in this case of the... Uh, of um, looking into the question of life after death, people want to say, oh, yes, you know, I'm being scientific about it or whatever, but really uh, all they're trying to do is to make the outcome positive. And so then they fudge. And so, so that makes it's like they're deceiving themselves. I mean, I honestly don't know, but I think this, and I think there's hope, and the hope that I think there is is that I do think that there's a way to bridge. 
the, the logic that we use is not adequate to the question, but I think that there is a way of bridging and extending logic into a new realm that will get us closer to the answer. That, must, that much I'm convinced of. But this is the trick with that, and that is that most of the people who are interested in, they think that they're interested in the question of life after death. What it really boils down to is that they want to hear inspiring stories. Mm. And, and you love stories. I love stories. And, and, you know, I've heard thousands of these things, and I hope I hear thousands more. I love stories. Of course but, I love stories. I, 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 but the fact is, the stories will never, be no amount of stories will ever get us to that point of certainty about life after death. And so that's the real question, that, that I think that improvement can occur. We can get a lot closer to the answer, but that it's going to take conceptual reason, reasoning rather than just this. All right. Well, science is pushing forward very, very quickly. One of the things I said uh, at the bottom of the last hour was, you know, what? how would it affect the world? If science suddenly came to some sort of absolute conclusive answer, who knows what it might be, but in some way did determine that there is life after death, did something or had a communication with the dead or something that was irrefutable, that proved to the world that, uh, indeed, there is an existence following the physical one, what that would do to the world? Well, you know, maybe one of the reasons that we don't know is that if we can imagine that situation, um, that that maybe it would, uh, it would dissolve the barrier between the worlds. I mean, suppose that we did have some sort of system of reason that could give us a sure answer. Yes. Then maybe that, that would that would dissolve the very distinction. I mean, it would be kind of embarrassing to sit around and go through your daily activities with a certain knowledge in your head that there's another dimension. You know, I mean, then it would, it would kind of like, uh, it's kind, if it, it would be that we, we we would be aware that our current existence is dreamlike, uh-huh. which uh, is which it is anyway. So, I mean, is it necessary for the world to function to not be able to answer that question? You know, I've often puzzled about that very thing. It it, it may be that there's something deep within us that people really don't want to know whether <laughs> there's life after death, because if they realize that if they did know, then it would make this this whole existence we're in kind of illusory. Yeah. You've got a, a kind of an interesting segment in, in the questions lined up to ask you, and that, that is, I guess you did work with criminally insane people, and you've got something on serial killers and mass murderers. What, what do you know about them? How do they fit into this? Well, I did. I worked for a while in a maximum security unit, art for the criminally insane, dealing with uh, paranoid schizophrenic killers and mass murderers and exteri- occasional serial killers. Yes. Um, the 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 schizophrenics and so on. I mean, you could kind of understand that because it's as though they're in a dream. I mean, um, uh, I think it was Jung who said the schizophrenic is a dreamer awake. Huh. And and you know, to them, they weren't killing an innocent person. They were killing the communist, you know, who was chasing them or whatever right. in, in their minds. But the serial killers. That was very tough because, uh, you know, most of them are sociopaths, 
and you can't really tell what's going on with them because um, they will just uh, they will just try to figure out what you they think you want to hear, and then they'll figure feed it back to you. Really? So you can never get a sense of a real person operating, in, you know, with a sociopath. And so for that very reason, I mean, they're very enigmatic. I could never figure out what was going on, if anything, inside a sociopath. Um, so in other words, uh, they're, uh, serial killers are a blank to you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can get certain kinds of things, obviously, about them. I mean, obviously, they get a sexual thrill from the killing. Because, you know, the, uh, they often have an orgasm at the point they kill the person and that sort of thing. And it, but, so to them, the act of killing is sexualized. <clears throat> but, but there's no real honesty to them. I mean, as I say, they just try to read you and then to manipulate you to... Uh, uh, to, to feed back to you what they sense that you want to hear so that you don't have a sense of a real person. It's interesting that in all those years I never <clears throat> really met in that environment. I mean, serial killers, you just don't know what to make of them. But of uh, the paranoid schizophrenic killers and that sort of thing and the mass murderers, I never met up with anybody in that circumstance that I felt was evil, per se. I mean... Um, uh, most of these things, we all understand, for example, what resentment is. And, and uh, you know, a lot of these guys, the mass murderers, it was just that resentments had built up to such a degree that one day they just sort of exploded. And, you know, I guess we've all exploded and we've all had resentments, so we can all kind of imagine what that would be like. Um, uh, evil is not something I even encountered in a... In, in a forensic psychiatry situation, although fascinating. certainly in other aspects of life uh, you see it going on. But in in the cell blocks where mass murderers are locked up, uh, serial killers, those kinds of people, um, you find them very hard to read. You, in other words, they're just trying to tell you what you want to hear, but not really explain what they feel. Uh, That's right. That's right. That's how it is, not just with serial killers, but sociopaths in general. Um, you don't... They, they, First of all, they are all very talkative, usually, and they're very charming. That's why a serial killer can uh, get to their victims, because they're so charming that uh, they can get the person right in the car with them and so on. And uh, people think they're, they're very nice uh, people and so on often. Hmm. Well, I guess that's why a program like mine does so well, dealing in the paranormal, dealing in all these kinds of things. These are things people want to know about. They yeah. really do. Certainly, uh, the people in this audience, for the most part, uh, really are curious about this type of thing. And that leads us into investigations of the paranormal generally and things that cannot be explained. Oh, by the way, um, I've been asking a lot of guests lately. I found this wonderful show on TV called Medium. Have you seen it yet? I haven't. No, I haven't. Nobody's seen it. Everybody no, has. All right, well, <laughs> really it's, it's one you've got to catch. Um, uh -huh. It's called Medium, and uh -huh. it's extremely well done. What is your view of mediums in general? Well, now, first of all, I've known a number of people in my life, ladies in the neighborhood. You know, I mean, the kind of people who live down the street and uh, who have this kind of 
uncanny, incomprehensible talent of being able to tell you things. And as long as it's in the neighborhood and that kind of, and these are very unobtrusive people who just a few people know about about the talent and so on. That's yes. one thing. That is genuinely baffling to me, Art. I've seen things, people like that do things that I, I just can't imagine what's happening. I've seen it too. And and I have, uh, very occasionally I had an experience or so um, with things that are just completely inexplicable. Yep. And so they do exist. Yep, that's right. And then on the other hand, there are the performers. I mean, you and I both know you can go down to the magic shop. Oh yes. And you can buy a book that can tell you how to do this and make com- you can you know people absolutely convinced that you have supernatural powers and and that part. I mean, I think that. Um, one thing I always tell people, and the practical way it comes up with me is this. I, I do a lot of grief counseling. And so from time to time I have people come to me and they say, well, should I go to a medium? And I say, I mean, you know, and that is a, then people are putting uh, themselves into your hands. I mean, it, it, there's you have to make a real, real thoughtful judgment. And this is what I ha- I tell people. I say, well, if you're going to do it, then you sort of owe it to yourself to read up on how some of these things can be produced by trickery. Uh So I always tell people, if you want to do it, arm yourself first with information about how it can be done fraudulently, because there are all sorts of ways. Uh, You know, one of the ways that's not uh, very often talked about in... um, uh, the public domain, I've noticed, is that um, uh, uh, the fraudulent mediums work together, even even though on the uh, the outside they may be uh, uh, kind of like the professional wrestling, uh, acting as though they're bitter enemies and so on. Yes. Uh, they actually um, work together, and it's been known since antiquity. The the people who worked in the Greek oracles knew that the average person who go who goes to an oracle is going to show up at another oracle within the next year or two. But isn't it, uh, from from this point of view, Doctor, isn't it a legitimate occupation? In other words, a medium who perhaps may not be telling the truth or may be using some sort of trickery. In in a way, they are grief counselors, aren't they? Yes, yes. I mean, it, it does. It, it Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and, and even, I think, some of the ones who... And I just, first of all, one thing I learned in my forensic work is, you know, I mean, I can't make any judgments about anybody else's motivation. I mean, you know, I remember a judge asked me one time something about somebody's motivation. And I said, you know, Judge, I mean, here I am, 40 years old. I, I can't even make a good judgment about my own motivation on most, most things. And, you know, he looked at me and he said, Dr. Moody, that's the wisest answer I've ever heard from an expert witness. Uh-huh. And and so, you know, I mean, I wouldn't want to make a judgment about anybody's motivation, but the fact is these things can be uh, done by trickery, and so it just naturally people who consult mediums, I think, ought to really investigate in this and become educated on it before trying it out. Because All right, so you're not saying uh, baloney. You're, no, you're no. Not... No, 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 no. I mean, I was saying, I don't know. I mean, I, I've seen things that I don't understand, and I also know that 
some things can be done by trickery. So that it, the wise person ought to consult, really become educated before. All right. How do you how do you do that? Are are there any books you recommend to people? I think reading a a wide array of books on it. Books um, books by uh, people who've uh, investigated mediums. Books by mediums. Uh, magic books that that give the simple step by step instructions on how to do it. You know, I had a really interesting experience about ten years ago, um, or so, eight or ten years ago, down in Florida. Art. Um, I was in a, a lecture and I gave a um, uh, somebody from the audience asked a question about psychics, mm-hmm. and I. Uh, gave a similar sort of thing that I'm telling you about, that, you know, people ought to be careful because it can be done by trickery, but certainly we've all had experiences where we seem to know in some weird way how what somebody else was thinking and just being as, as I'm being now. Well, afterwards, they had a reception for me, and um, I was sitting in the reception, and this young woman she was early 30s, as you could tell just by looking at her, and just from her whole demeanor, um, you could tell that she was a professional person from her vocabulary and the way sure. she presented herself. You know, it looked like a businesswoman. Sure. So um, she was really got on my case. She said, oh, you know, I went to the psychic, and he told me absolutely these things. There's no way he could have known it, and blah, 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 and so on. And so I said, well, now, just a minute here. And I put my, my hands over my face, and I sort of, you know, leaned down, and I I said, hmm, I, I just don't understand this. Um, I just don't understand this, but I'm sitting in your office or in the place you work, and I'm pulling out your middle desk drawer. <laughs> and I'm looking down here in the right-hand corner, and it looks to me like there's some little packages of McDonald's or Burger King mustard or ketchup or something like that. And that woman, I mean, Art, it was just like she bowed, like her head (laughs) bobbed, and she sort of bowed. And I know from, as a psychiatrist, you knew you you had her. uh, Absolutely. That I could have said at that point, hop on my bus, we're joining your, my cult. She'd have been right there. She'd have been been right there. All right, Dr. Moody. Dr. Moody, hold that. We'll be right back. From the high desert, Dr. Raymond Moody is my guest. How about you? A few little ketchups down there. White satin, never reaching the end. Letters I've written.
with Art Bell. Call the Wildcard Line at area code 775-727-1295. The first-time caller line is area code 775-727-1222. To talk with Art Bell from east of the Rockies, call toll-free at 800-825-5033. From west of the Rockies, call 800-618-8255. International callers may reach Art by calling your in-country Sprint Access number, pressing option 5. And dialing toll-free, 800-893-0903. From coast to coast and worldwide on the Internet, this is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. Indeed so. My guest, Dr. Raymond Moody, the world's expert on NDEs. Shelley from Vancouver, B.C., Canada writes, Hey, Art, Medium is a fantastic show. Best thing on TV right now, in my humble opinion. I watch it every week. Did you know it's based loosely, probably? On a real medium in Arizona, and I, I know that's true, and you know what? I would very much like to interview that particular medium, and you know, in the show, she's just kind of an average housewife uh, in the employ of a district attorney's office, uh, because she obviously helps solve cases. I mean, just a very regular kind of person. The way they do the show is very appealing, because it's not full of hocus-pocus and baloney. It's kind of the way you would imagine it to be in real life if somebody had that power. And I do believe some people have that power. And I would love to meet the person on on which that show is based. Hint, hint, hint. Uh, by the way, it's on Mondays on uh, NBC. Unsolicited plug. You want to catch a good show? Medium. Monday. Mondays on NBC, as they say, check your local listings in a moment uh oh you know what i would like to restrict all of my phone lines to people who have had ndes how about we try that and that means all of my lines and now i may be taking a risk here but um we've got a very wide audience and i think we can cast a pretty wide net so i'm going to make a, a shot at it if you're not every line obviously is lit up right now so please just hang up uh, unless you've had an NDE, if you've actually had an NDE, if you've experienced clinical death and really have gone through this, then let's give it a try, all right? Just all of the lines. Everybody else, please just hang up. And uh, we'll take only calls on any of the lines from people who have really had clinical death and a real NDE. If that's you, then then let's see if we can fill the lines this hour with those people. It may be tough, but we're going to give it a try. So only NDE experiencers, people who have actually undergone clinical death, need apply. You know the phone numbers, and in a moment we will continue. Once again, Dr. Raymond Moody, and I thought we'd give it a try, Dr. Moody, in this hour where we take calls, take, it, take them from people that have actually had an NDE. Great. Think that's a good idea? Yeah, yeah, neat. Well, as you said, everybody likes stories. Uh, the one about the lady with the uh, aneurysm has been with me, I, I think I saw it on 60 Minutes. You know, they did a piece on it. It was absolutely incredible, and at the end, uh, they asked the doctor, well, doctor, for the, those 40 minutes, where was she? Right. 
He's just saying, I don't know. Right, right. And um, I heard one a uh, couple of years ago, Art, that's really quite fascinating like this, too. Um, and I heard this from a well-known psychotherapist, uh, a very fine woman, who's um, about my age. Um, I'm 60 now. And um, it happened to her son, who was 30 years old at the time, and it happened to him about uh, four years before she told it to me. I also heard this from a cardiologist in Washington who had had also um, uh, looked into the case um, uh, uh, through this, this same woman, psychotherapist. And what happened was that her son, who was 30 and who was a very macho individual, specifically he was a firefighter, and you know that uh, generally my experience anyway has been that those are very sensitive, sweet people, but also there's a macho culture to it. Oh, absolutely. So this young man had at age 30 a um, dissecting aneurysm of the aorta. And if you have, if you are not medically informed and you don't know what that is, you're lucky almost because I'm, and I'm not going to induce uh, hyperventilation spells in your uh, listeners by explaining what that is, but believe me, it is a gosh-awful circumstance. Mm-hmm. And so um, this, it, very often people with it die. And so this young man um, was taken to the hospital in time and uh, they uh, um, were able to operate on him to repair the uh, aneurysm. But during the, the time on the, uh, in the operation, he did experience a cardiac arrest mm-hmm. and had a near-death experience. Now, concurrently with this, his wife was uh, full-term pregnant. And about this time, uh, she was delivering her uh, daughter. Now... His perception was that as he went up through this tunnel, his young daughter was coming down the other way. Holy mackerel! Really? Grabbed on him and uh, grabbed onto him, and in his rendition of it, pulled him back into uh, his body. Holy mackerel! While he was in the hospital, and I saw I saw photographs of this that his uh, his mother, as it were. Uh, showed me, uh, they put his infant daughter on his chest while the, I think about three months he spent in the hospital, and as uh, the young woman was, the young girl was about four at that time, and uh, the the grandmother, or, or mother of this young man, uh, said that the daughter and her son were just absolutely inseparable. And, and, you know, people often ask me, or they say, well, you know, they'll start telling me a story and they'll say, oh, I guess you're bored by this. I, you've heard so many of them. And I always say, yes, yes, I find this so boring. Uh, you're telling me that your heart stopped beating for 20 minutes and you got out of your body and you saw a light and you, yeah, I find that very boring. And of course, what I'm getting at there is that this never gets boring. No. I mean, this, this is intrinsically fascinating. Of course it and is. And inspiring, too. I mean, it does give hope, because just as we can't say, say uh, for sure that this does show that there's a life after death, we can't say that it's not either. We just don't know. And certainly, it really does change the 
lives of the people to whom it happens. All right, Doctor, here's, here comes one of them. Uh, first time caller line, you're on the air with Dr. Raymond Moody. Hello. Hi, hello. I'm very honored to meet you. Okay. Uh, I've had three near-death experiences, and they've been different times, each one. One was at three, and I had German measles, and um, I don't remember a whole lot about it, except I came back and scared my mother to death by saying that they sent me back. You know, the next one I had was about 10, and I had an overdose of a medication, an injection, and just went whamming out of my body so fast I didn't even know what happened to me. And we were in the car. My mother had taken me to the doctor, and we were on our way home. And uh, she was driving crazy, screaming and yelling and looking straight through me, and I kept telling her I was all right, you know, and... Well, I turned around and looked where she was looking, and I was on the seat laid out. You know, that kind of popped me back into my body. And uh, the third one happened when I was around 30. Um, I had hyperthyroidism, and uh, my heart was going at about 160 at rest. And it decided to take a little vacation, and uh, I went into the big one where you go to the light and the tunnel and the whole bit and... uh, I thought I was crazy. I never talked about it for years because <laughs> this was before Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and everybody, you know, it was really different. Um, but what it, about the coming back process? I mean, do you remember why or how, instead of going forward, like I presume most do, you came back? With the light, it was just the light. It was absolutely phenomenal. It was just Amazing. Word. You just don't have words. I understand. But again, ma'am, do you remember the return process? Do you remember? Well, I remember uh, just being back in my body on that, and that was not good. (laughs) Okay. uh, Well, a lot of people I've heard say that, Doctor. Um, This return process, are most people in some way notified they're going back or given a decision or what? There's about three different patterns. Some people say that they just suddenly find themselves back in their body and they had no sense of transition. A second group will tell you that uh, somebody there told them they had to go back. Either this light they meet up with or a relative who's passed away said, say, uh, you have to go back, it's not time yet for you and so on. And a third group are people who tell us that uh, they're given a choice, that they're told Either you can go back to the life you've been leading or you can continue with this experience. Not too surprisingly, all the ones I've talked with who were given that choice uh, chose to come back. Well, of course. And it's interesting that uh, almost universally they say the same thing. They say the reason they chose to come back was that that they they had young children left to raise. They said if it had been left up to them, they would have preferred to stay in the light, but they choose to come back most frequently because they have uh, young children. That absolutely, of course, makes sense. Wildcard Line, you're on the air with Dr. Moody. Hello. Good morning, fellas. Good morning. Yeah, I've had two of them. Uh, My first one was when I was about 15 years old. I was leaving my parents' farm going to work, and uh, there's a real steep hill about a quarter mile away from their farm. And I was putt-putting along. I just listened, just was listening to a CD I just got, which is kind of ironic with the guest's name. It's uh, Moody Blues. Yeah. 
And uh, I was jamming to that. I was going about 45 mile an hour, and I come up to this hill. And uh, right as I popped over the hill there, there was a four-wheel drive truck coming at me about, uh, he's probably going about 45, 50, they said. So we had a head-on collision car wreck, and the uh, only thing I remember is I remember floating above the wreck. I seen the whole accident above it. And, uh, and then I, uh, I remember about five minutes later, actually, I don't remember the time going by, but the guy who was in the other truck said I was out for about five minutes. And, and I woke up, and and uh, when they come out to investigate the wreck, they said, well, he must have impacted here. And I told them, no, it was about seven feet down. I watched it, you know, I watched it above the wreck, and they thought I was all crazy. But uh, And then the uh, recent one I had about two years ago, and I still don't want to talk about that one. I'm still kind of tripping out about that one. You fellas have a good night. All right. You too, Thank sir. Thank you, sir. Take care. Uh, east of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. Moody. Hi. I'm sorry. Okay, I, I had to excise what you just said. So let's right. start again with just your first name. Right. This is uh, J.R. I'm listening to you on 570 KLIF in Dallas. Right. I got ran over. Uh... Oh, hello, Doc. Hello, Art. Yes, sir. Hello, sir. Uh, I got ran over when I was six years old by a truck. A boy was chasing me across the street. A truck uh, backed up, and he caught me, and he drugged me. And uh, the first thing that I remember in the hospital was leaving my body. And I don't, I don't know if it was near death or an out-of-body experience, because uh, I was looking down at my body, and there was like a bench, and I was sitting on this bench in the in my room, looking down on my body. And it looked like a woman in a habit, you know, like a nun. Yes. In a in a real, I'll just the whole the whole thing was white. There wasn't any black on it. And she came up and sat down next to me and put her arm around me and said, "It's going to be okay." And the next thing I knew, I was waking up. Back in your body, uh, doctor. Everybody so far has said that. That like the first thing that happens is an accident or whatever, and they're out of their body. They're out of their body. That's right. That's but right. conscious and able to see things. Now, I also remember another 60 Minutes piece where they, it was really cute. In the operating room, they had, um, having heard all these stories, they put some numbers up where only somebody on the ceiling could see them mm -hmm. and tried to get people to come back and recite those numbers uh, you know, as proof that they really had been up and out of their body and on the ceiling of the operating room, uh, if they would have been, they would have seen those numbers. Um, the the other argument, uh, the counter-argument uh, that people had not reported those numbers back was it was not very important to them. It isn't what they were concentrating on. They were concentrating on their own bodies and their situation and, and whatever they were feeling, but not looking for evidence to repeat later. That's right. And not only that, but let's say that someone did uh, be accurate, uh, accurately report something uh, seen under that circumstance. What would we make of it? I mean, there, there wouldn't really be even any context to, to interpret it. You know, Art, one of the most interesting things I know is that... The whole notion of truth 
that we have. The, the very idea that certain things are the case independently of what anybody thinks about it is not a, a notion that goes back to prehistory, as we might imagine, uh, but it, it actually was formulated in about 500 BCE by an identifiable historical figure. His name was Parmenides. He was one of the first of the ancient Greek philosophers. And the, the way that Parmenides came up with this notion is, uh, and you can verify for this for yourself just by going down to borders and getting a standard history of ancient Greek philosophy mm-hmm. and, and read about this, but he went over to the other side, and this notion of truth was divulged to him. And because of that long sequence of events, it went from Parmenides, then ultimately to Plato, uh, who formulated a counterbalancing notion of falsehood, and then on into Aristotle, who formulated logic as you and I use it. I mean, logic is a technical word, but it's incorporated now into the common thought of everybody. And that because of that historical, those historical events, logic and as you and I know it, is predicated on literal language. And so, because when we talk about life after death, we're not using a literal mode of language. It it precludes really having uh, certain scientific knowledge about this. In 2005, I'm not talking about 2050 or 2100. I mean for now. But to me, it's just a fascinating uh, little piece of information well, that the logic we have ultimately even came from uh, the other dimension of reality or, or what was Parmenides regarded in any way as the, the spirit world, the place that people go when they die okay. that he went to. All right, Dr. OBEs, are they essentially the same thing that happens to you when you clinically die? Um. A lot of people who have near-death experiences, as a matter of fact, very commonly in the near-death experience, people have an out-of-body experience. That's what we're hearing. But out-of-body experiences can also occur in other contexts as well. Right. For example, like uh, astronomers looking through their telescopes sometimes yes. uh, ha- get out-of-body, or, uh, or it happens to people sometimes just spontaneously. So you don't have to be near-death to have an out-of-body experience. But if you are near death, that's a very common uh, circumstance in which people get out of their bodies. So far, each person has said exactly that. And, and then I've talked to all these people, interviewed many people on OBEs, and it does seem like they're sort of exactly a similar process at that point. In other words, out of the body, but able to observe everything around them. That's right. And sometimes able to accurately... Uh, describe what was going on in the circumstance, too, as I've known from many of my patients and from uh, people who've related this to me. Well, so many doctors have heard that. How do they explain that? I mean, the person is out cold. They've got no heart moving. They've got nothing feeding the brain. They couldn't possibly know these things, but they know them. Art, I don't know. It just, I mean, I... uh, I just don't know. It's I've okay seen to things say. in my practice that I really... It certainly inspires me to go on to try to learn more, 
but I would be foolish to think that to say that I have the answer to that. All right, Dr. Moody, hold hold it right there. We're at the bottom of the hour. Dr. Raymond Moody, the world's foremost authority on NDEs, and still there are many things to which he responds properly, I might add. I don't know. It's refreshing to hear sometimes. I'm Art Bell. Dr. Raymond Moody, and we're looking for people on the lines who have had actual NDEs, probably clinically dead, that sort of thing. That's what he specializes in. So if that's you, uh, please give us a call. If not, sit back and listen. To talk with Art Bell, call the wildcard line at area code 775-727-1295. The first-time caller line is area code 775-727-1222. To talk with Art Bell from east of the Rockies, call toll-free at 800-825-5033. From west of the Rockies, call Art at 800-618-8255. International callers may reach Art Bell by calling your in-country Sprint Access number, pressing option 5, and dialing toll-free 800-893-0903. From coast to coast and worldwide on the Internet, this is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. Another very interesting thing that I note just with a few people that I've talked to who say they've had NDEs, more than not, uh, they've had several, not just one, but several. I wonder if that's common, we'll ask. Once again, Dr. Raymond Moody and Doctor, you've written a lot of books. What uh, what are you working on now? What's coming next? Well, you know, Art, actually, um, I just in the next few days, I'm going to open a new website called RaymondMoodyInstitute.com, and mm. I will be uh, uh, putting out uh, daily uh, reflections on that, and um, been doing a lot of uh, research in the last few years on a 
fascinating phenomenon art that I call the swan song phenomenon. Um, this is something I have seen for years and years, but finally have uh, accumulated enough cases that I can make uh, you know some sort of good statement on it. Yes. And basically, what I have found out is that um, it is very common, not as common as near-death experiences or empathic. Uh, death experiences, but still quite common that people in the hours or day or so or sometimes minutes before they die will suddenly start reciting poetry or sometimes even making up poetry on the spot or singing. And, um, and even when you talk to the people who are left behind, they say that, you know, as far as they knew that they're relative who had passed away had had absolutely no interest whatsoever uh, in in poetry while they were alive and yet right there on the verge of death start erupting into poetry and you know I've looked a lot into this and I have found that uh, the ancient Gnostics for example at least one sect of them um, that as a spiritual practice while they were alive they would uh, make up these elaborate songs to sing just as they were dying. And the whole idea behind this was that um, that they believed that they could attune themselves to the other dimensions of reality they were going to be going into uh, by singing or, or by reciting poetry on the verge of death. Well, Doctor, I'm not into poetry, so if I began reciting poetry, <laughs> you can be sure <laughs> I was dying. Um, <laughs> all right, we've got a lot of people on the phone. First on caller line, you're on the air with Dr. Moody. Hi. Hello. Hello. Yeah, my name's Casey, and I'm calling from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Yes, Casey. In December 8, 2002, I was in a very horrible car accident. Uh, we smashed through a couple of brick walls and uh, ran into a truck, and uh, I received a bunch of lacerations, um, mostly on my head, from the broken glass. And the next thing I know, I'm hovering over the scene of the the scene of the, the crash. Right. And <clears throat> I felt myself being pulled up like as uh, reverse gravity. And I began traveling at tremendous speeds um, through a cloud of like white, a white area. And uh, what's really weird is I felt really powerful when I was traveling. And the next thing I know, I was sucked back into my body in the hospital room. And that's when I woke. And they were uh, feeding me, you know, plasma and everything to, to get the blood back in my body. Okay, so it's like you were going up one minute and powerful and flying through the white light, and then the next thing you know, boom, you're back into the hospital. Yeah, yeah, it was really weird. I was uh, traveling very, very fast. Got it. All right, thank you very much. Uh, so are those reports common? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard of this, uh, like a sudden ascent upward. Uh, you know, Jung had a similar thing when he had a cardiac arrest during a heart attack in uh about 1944, he describes uh, being propelled upward like that at, at high speed. And, yeah, that's something I hear from time to time. And, again, this uh, this passage into or through the realm of light is uh, uh, you know, a feature you hear again and again in these stories. And, of course, uh, many doctors and psychiatrists explain as the brain dying from the outside in with the center being the last vestige of life and, therefore, the light. Yeah, and you know, Art, have you ever thought about the fact that if you applied that same line of reasoning 
to how you perceive what you're looking at now. It's the same thing, right? I mean, the, the physiologists tell us that whatever you're looking at right now, the light from your light fixtures is beaming down and bouncing off of it. It gets reflected into your eye and refracted through the lens onto the retina and the rods and cones undergo a chemical change and yes. the electrochemical impulses go up into your brain. So does that mean that what you're experiencing is not real? I mean, you know, it's just a, you can apply that same reasoning even to the uh, the experiences of everyday life. Well, that's right. Wildcard Line, you're on the air with Dr. Moody. Good morning. Hey, good morning, fellas, again. Yes. I was the same fellow that I had the car wreck with combined speeds of uh, over 100 mile an hour, and I seen their accident above the wreck. No, I, I got it, sir, but we can only take one call per night, uh, uh, easily, one per week, actually. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. Moody. Hello. Uh, this is me. You. Okay, this is James from Calhoun, Georgia. Yes, sir. Uh, share, a, share my experience. Uh, I was walking up the road, facing the traffic out near Houston, and uh, the next thing I knew, I was in a room, and I was looking at myself, and I was up in a corner, and there were three shadows, and two were moving, one was sitting behind a desk. Well, was there a reason why you had this? I mean, did something I, happen I had to been you? hit by the car, and I didn't know it, a, oh. drunk, a drunk station oh, wagon. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah, I wonder how many people are unaware of even what happened to them. That's a good thought. So, so first thing, you, you didn't even know about the accident. You no. just saw it when you were out of your body. Mm -hmm. Got it. And it seemed like they were having a court. One had a real rough voice and one had a kind voice, and both of them wanted me to go with them. And I, you know, I was getting tired and tired as the thing was going on. Finally, I said, I don't care who I go with. Quit this arguing. And <laughs> next thing I knew, I was waking up about six weeks later in the hospital. Wow. Six weeks later. Wow. Yeah, I guess they kept me, you know, kind of medicated. Wow. <laughs> it broke my neck, back, and leg. Oh, my God. And I didn't yeah. even know what happened until they told me. All right. Uh, so there you are, Doctor. There's one that, uh, that's, that's really... Like they had a, a bad cop, good cop routine. They were I almost on. said that myself. Um, so a lot of different things apparently can happen to so you. Thank but you very much for that story, sir. The intriguing part of that was that he didn't even see the accident coming. He was just that's right. out that's and right. above. That often happens in a situation like that. It's called uh, retrograde amnesia where people don't remember the uh, actual event and sometimes, for, uh, sometimes before the injury to... Well, I suppose you could be standing on a road and not see the car coming and not well, have, true too. have any warning whatsoever. West of the Rockies, you're on the air with Raymond, Dr. Raymond Moody. Hi. Hi. How are you? This is Tim from Phoenix. Yes. Uh, Dr. Moody, I'm looking at my bookshelf. I'm looking at the book Life After Life right here. Yes. One of my favorite books. Well, thank you, sir. Anyway, uh, when I was in my 20s, I was driving down the road. I was a musician. I had an amplifier in my front, uh, passenger side seat and my guitar in the back, and I got hit by a lady. An amplifier to crush my ribs, and I remember an impact. I was screaming, and I saw myself out of body, out of the car, screaming. Next thing I know, I'm laying in the street like uh, when you go by an accident, everybody rubbernecks and looks at the guy. On yep, the, yep. And I'm in the ambulance, and my side's crushed, and I'm just trying to not, you know, get into shock. But the weird thing is, too, is when you're talking about Carl Jung, is everything in the car was crushed except for my guitar. Even the case was crushed. 
but the guitar is the only thing that wow. survived, and I played for 20 more years after that. So. Wow. All right. Well, thank well, you. Well, I hope you kept that same guitar. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your lucky guitar. Yeah. Uh, International Line, you're on the air with Dr. Moody. Hello. Good evening, sir. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I've been listening for about 10 years, and uh, I've heard of a lot of stories. My name is Bill. I'm listening to CGOB out of Winnipeg, Manitoba. Yes, Bill. Uh, Superstition. I was uh, I was a young child. My grandmother uh, had died, and my aunt and myself were in the room when she passed away. And uh, my aunt carried one of these instamatic Polaroid cameras, and there was smoke coming out uh, of the register above a window. Okay, the old uh, steam-type fed one. Yes. And uh, so my aunt, um, why she took the picture, I have no idea. But I saw something come out of my grandmother's body at the same time. And uh, later on, when we looked at the picture, it was a picture of Jesus with his hands folded down. <laughs> and, my, and my grandmother survived. She was dead for 40 minutes. And after she got out of the hospital and, and was talking, and, and I had told her of this story, and she said that when she was in the light, Jesus told her that she still had grandchildren. She has over 200 grandchildren, by the way, that they needed their grandmother. And no, she had to go back. And she remembers talking with Jesus, and Jesus was in the room, and um, a lot of people never really believed this story. And, and I saw the picture, and I was there. And All I right, sir. I, I, I appreciate the story. Uh, doctor, do you think that... Uh people's individual religious preference uh, dictates the experience they're going to have many times? No. I think that their individual religious experience shapes the language they bring to it. But I think that there is an underlying experience which people will universally say that they can't put into words anyway and that what they do is that they just bring the closest words they can find in their in their uh, the traditions they've known about. What and I know lots and lots of people who, who say that prior to this they had no religious background or interests or beliefs and yet uh, uh, have an experience which transforms them in, in the same way that, that we hear from people who, uh, who have these experiences. All right. First time caller line, you're on the air with Dr. Moody. Hi. Oh, hello. Hello. Uh, I, a few, about a year ago in January, I had my daughter by emergency C-section because I had to transient, died on the table. Okay, you're kind of breaking up seconds. on, uh, dear, hold it. You're breaking up on us a little bit here. I'm sorry. You're I'm on a cell sorry. phone? Okay, yeah, you, you had, okay, hold on. You had your daughter by, yes, emer had by emergency C-section, and what happened to you? I passed away for 10 seconds. I'm and sorry, you passed away or out? Away. My heart stopped and I stopped breathing. Got it. But, uh, anywho, I, uh, at first I see nothing but blackness and I felt completely at peace. And then I seen my dad that died about two years back and he told me that little girl needed me. And all of a sudden I felt like I was being thrust down and I woke up later in the recovery room. Yep. All right. Uh, thank you very, very much. Uh, it just goes on and on so many. It does. I mean, this is just endless, sort of. And, uh, you know, the, the studies that have been done, well, this was many years ago now, but the uh, Gallup poll got interested in this, and they found uh, that at that time some enormous number of Americans, I think it was about 
8 million American adults had been through something like this, and this was about 1980, I believe. Um, so, you know, we're dealing here with uh, an experience that is really remarkably common. Yeah, apparently a real phenomenon. But, but the big but, of course, is that um, um, even with the lady who disappeared for 40 minutes, and we can reasonably ask where was she, uh, we've never had anybody come back who's been dead for, well, I don't know, what's the world's record, Doctor? Well, I've heard people who've had extremely lengthy cardiac arrest, but now one thing that gets into the picture here that's kind of befuddling is that uh, we've all heard the thing about the five-minute rule, right? Yes. Uh, that after five minutes, the, the brain is hopelessly damaged. Right. The trouble is that's an excellent clinical rule of thumb, but there's all sorts of circumstances in which it doesn't apply. For example... If Dr the drowning in cold water. Drowning in cold water, or if the person is frozen in a snowbank, uh, then the, these uh, apparent arrests can go on for incredible lengths of time. <laughs> and then there's another class of people where it just doesn't make sense under any circumstances, I mean, and yet they they lived. I mean, I just, uh, you know, there's all kinds of things that happen to you in medicine that uh, just don't go by the books. Maybe you would be willing to comment on those people who wish to be cryogenically preserved. Um, you know, since we know that uh, slowing down the metabolic rate uh, allows us a little extra time, uh, perhaps... Being frozen um, would not be so scientifically crazy a thing to do uh, at death, or or even just prior to death. There are people have they've actually gone to courts and tried to get permission to be frozen while they're still actually alive. Uh, you know, Art, I'm thinking. Um, I wonder if maybe technology won't someday. Uh, maybe even soon supersede that with all of the amazing things they're doing now with um, uh, the, the genetic engineering and the stem cells and uh, all this other stuff. And the, and the, the uh, maybe maybe that sort of complicated arrangement won't even be necessary one day. Huh. I mean, um, in the New York Times Sunday Magazine today, there's a really fascinating article for example, about stem cells and the, um, um, the way that they can now create uh, sort of hybrid entities that have human uh, cells and uh, cells of various animal species. Yes, and, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. Yeah, I mean, there's some pretty weird stuff that's going on. And so our science is getting so far beyond the pale that we are entering almost the age of nonsense in science. Uh, <laughs> about several months ago in the New York Times Sunday uh, and Tuesday science section, there was an article that said really that science has now reached a point where there are some things that we know that are true by our calculations, and yet they make absolutely no sense to the mind. So we may be getting into an area now where... Um, it will be possible to transfer consciousness on in some other way that uh, that we don't even need to freeze the body. Well, perhaps so, but there's a lot of worrisome questions with that one, too. Transfer consciousness, all the memories, and with it, 
what we what we think of as the soul or that which leaves the body at the same time, or does that leave, leaving only a very cold consciousness minus something very important? That's right. That's right. I mean, it's it's eerie. It makes uh, makes you chilled almost. Some of the things that science can do now, it's really scary. And I'm very liberal on this. I mean, I'm just I vote whatever almost that you know that science can do let's give it a try but uh things are getting really spooky in a lot of areas of i, I was uh, asking about um oh, a couple of months back i started as i asked six of my friends uh who are very articulate and very intelligent and i and all very well informed and i asked them all independently the same question i asked them is the notion of a magnet made entirely of plastic, nonsense or not. Every one of them said it's nonsense. But the reason that I asked that question was that and about a week before, I had read in a science journal that scientists have now actually done that. They've created a <laughs> magnet that's made entirely of plastic. Guarantee so, I would have said nonsense. Yeah. And and so, I mean, things are changing so rapidly. And, and the area that's so dear to your heart and my heart um, uh, are this whole area of uh, detection of extraterrestrial civilizations. I just... I mean, I'm just getting the increasing sense that we are right on the verge of it. Doctor, doctor, we're also, uh, this was our swan song. Yeah, okay, great. <laughs> Referring to your next book. Buddy, doctor, Dr. Great. Raymond Moody, thank you, my friend. Thank you, Art. Great, great talking with you. I have a good night. You too. Take care. That's Dr. Raymond Moody. See you all next weekend. From the high deserts, I'm Art Bell. Good night. This is Crystal. Good night in the desert, shooting stars across the sky. This magical journey will take us on a ride, filled with the longing, searching for the truth.